We're still in the process of um, setting up our podcast. Watch out, Sohaib. <laughs> Sohaib, you're a mic tech. You should know this. Um, I wonder if we should sandbag these things because it's kind of... It's my, I think it's resting on the bottom foot. That's what it is. You know what it is? The middle foot. But it's putting weight on the middle foot, which distributes its weight away from its far pieces. You just have to raise the middle It's very close palm. to my face. Yeah, I mean, you find... Which what is a good thing, I think. Yeah, we think it's a good thing. Yes. <laughs> so, Hybe, could you raise the middle column just a tiny bit from the bottom? The bottom, oh, exactly. Thank you. No, I see it too. There you go. Perfect. Now, very good, very well. Normally we do play with headphones, but we've got two great sets of headphones. And one that's good, but its limitation is a very short cable. So it makes whoever has to wear it feel like they're wearing a leash. Or like this morning with our brothers. Like what you can do with these is that the ones that you guys have, because I can't have that because of my cable situation, is that you can just pop it off of that thing and you could just walk around the room too. Mm. And it's totally But it's free. got this like big... Yeah, yeah, cord, you, right? you've got a long cord. You could walk. Oh. You, you, okay. you could go to Jabal Amman with that cord. <laughs> <laughs> Find me in Duar Lahul. I'm like <laughs> checking in, guys, <laughs> seeing some really line. great things down here. <laughs> Conversation starters. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the, the podcast? It's called Come Town. No. It's just a group of dudes shooting shit. And okay. like they've gotten to the point where on Patreon they're turning around a hundred thousand dollars a month or, wow. or an episode even. Okay. And all they do is stay just stupid conversations about nothing. And they have one guy who's ho all he does is laugh. And I could eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I just That's a great job. That's a great gig. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Just come laugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'll see the secret reason why I'm bringing uh, Willie to this mix is that he has a laugh that is, um, I would say, I just wanted to put that laugh in the same room together with this laugh. And it's it, going to be great. Because that multiplication factor is of those panda? laughs. No, no, Willie, <laughs> Willie, no, panda's panda. Panda's panda. Panda stays panda. Panda's panda. always panda. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that the name on his ID? Um, uh, the reason I, <laughs> I think the government that's the issued next panda. Step. <laughs> Could you turn down track five a little bit, please, Sohaib, on the, on the mixer? Thank you. Yeah. Um, the reason I refer to them in those names is because I felt to mention to you mm. that here in You're Alive Now, we, uh, we don't take the response. We don't have to wear our first names that we wear outside of this room. Mm -hmm. In fact, you can be whoever you'd like to be today. Mm. You could name yourself. You could be named. The options are open. Tamam. It's also how we maintain anonymity because we don't talk about the government. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk about the government. One day you were called Charlemagne. You went by that name. Arjun. 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 Yeah. Arjun. So it was saved on my phone. It's still like it sometimes shows up when <laughs> Swipe calls as Arjun. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> now what I just did, I have to go. <laughs> it's a little way of saying, oh, wait, I broke the rule and I need to send a signal to whoever's going to be mixing this that I just said his name and you've yeah, got to go yeah. bleep that out. <laughs> and you just did it right now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's a way of just checking yourselves. Oh, I said his name. Okay. <laughs> so if you guys were to give me a name, what would my name be? Um, mm. I was, my first name was Shahrazad. That was what I would have chosen for myself. Brilliant. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Same? Uh, someone Fatimi. else. Abla. 
I want to know more about where like the instinct of Abla comes. The poetry of Antara bin Shaddad for his love for Abla in like pre-Islamic times was so like strong and so like Abla is like this ideal woman to Antara. So it's like I don't know about this story of poetry. Yeah, yeah. Who is the poet? Antara bin Shaddad. Antara bin Shaddad. Where's that street? Antara bin Shaddad. It's right here, right? Is this it? Yeah, I think so. Are we on it? Are we on it? Do you know the web? Do you know the web? This street naming concept? No. It's all poets. Really? Every street. Ahmad Shawqi. Yeah. Yeah. What else is there? There's a bunch. Al-Mutanabbi. So all these poets are... I mean, all the streets. Yeah, yeah. Dirar bin Azwar. Dirar bin Azwar is a Sahabi. But also probably a poet, maybe. He's a companion of the Prophet. I'm sure he's a poet. But he's like known for his like generosity or something. But yeah, and so, um, I don't know. Your connection with indigenous lands allows me to, like, that's where my thought went, you know. And the being the woman of, of the desert, basically. Mm. Abla. Mm. You know, there's also Majnoon Layla. Mm. <laughs> who's Qais ibn al-Mulawah, I think, or I don't know the mm. exact name, but... He was crazy for Layla. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Like Sufi crazy. Mm-hmm. Where you just... Yeah. I was actually thinking about this the other day because I went down a rabbit hole of researching the plant Majnune. You know the, the flower that we have growing mm-hmm. all over I wanted to the ask Mediterranean about that. in the Middle East? Can you describe? Because like, I don't know anything about it. Majnune is so beautiful. So when you're walking down the streets and what's really phenomenal about it is like I've been all around the Mediterranean this year, all the way from Spain through around the, the coast and then into Jordan and so on and so forth. And this is the one flower and the one plant that you find in every single mm. corner of the Mediterranean. Yeah. From Spain and Barcelona, Madrid, Granada, you know, Mallorca, all the way through to Greece and France, in Tunis, in Morocco, in Jordan, everywhere, everywhere. Perfect seductress. She is. All land will yeah, take her. Yeah, and it's so, she, well, I don't know, it's that the land takes her. It's that she, she chooses, I will be here. Will you be know here. what I mean? The reason why we call her Majnune, there's multiple reasons why this name has been given to this plant. The first one is because it's like the crazy lady. Like anywhere you take her, she will take over. Mm-hmm. And she's so expressive. So the, the actual plant is called, what, what's the common name? Bougainville? Oh, the like Bougainvilleas. Yeah, Bougainvilleas. Yeah, yeah. So that's Majnuna. It's the same It's plant. like the purple pink ones. So there's about like 12 different species yeah. of Bougainvillea, oh, wow. and they all have different colors. Some of them are green, some of them are white, some of them are yellow, some of them are fuchsia. The ones you see around the Mediterranean are specific species. I forget the second name, but I can get it very easily, um, that are the fuchsia ones. And so one of the other reasons we call it Majnuna is because um, in terms of like folklore and storytelling about plants over time, this particular plant was known to like ignite the passions of the heart and put you in the state of like the Sufi Majnun. Because the story of the Sufi Majnun is one that someone who's gone mad. But the definition of that madness is that their mind has submitted to the madness of their heart. They exactly. no longer use their mind to see the world. They now operate via the heart's eye, which makes them seem mad to the rest of the world because they're not working by intellectual logic, but oftentimes they're far more advanced in their understanding of what a thing truly is, right? It's choosing the madness of being madly in love with the divine because it's like the beloved and the lover. So Bajnune is said to spark this and the way that she looks in the, in the streets, she like wakes you up and brings alive this passion. But it's also like an intensely medicinal plant and it's not from here. It's actually from Brazil. Brazil and Mexico. 
And then there was these lines of travelers and botanists that went down from the Mediterranean, from Spain, from France, from the Arab nations, all the way to Brazil and Mexico, fell in love with this plant and then brought it back here. And now everyone thinks that it's like a Mediterranean plant, but in reality, it's actually Brazilian. It's very interesting. Lots we, of medicine to it, too. It. We have a soft spot for the Brazilians. We do. Arabs in general, like we, in the Levant in specific. Yeah, and we have these crazy lines of history between uh, Latin America and the Levant that mm -hmm. are just, they're not stories that have been lost mm -hmm. so much or erased so much. It's mm -hmm. just like they've gone very, very quiet over the last like 100 years. But we have a really, really ancient history with the Latin Americans. You know, when you say yeah. Sufi love, Yes. Um, I didn't even remotely take any connotation of the word mad. Mm -hmm. But when, when you prepared it with the concept of Sufi love, when you say mad, it was just automatically, at least in my mind, assumed like the right kind of madness. Like if you're mm -hmm. going to go mad, it's the one who just has given himself or herself fully to mm -hmm. that thing. And it, it immediately made me think of like the tragedy that in this country, almost nobody experiences yeah. themselves from that place. The place of madness, yeah. The place of just full. This is the thing. Yeah. But, you know, although it's a tragedy, you have to believe that it's in the realm of possibility to push yourself closer back toward that place. Mm -hmm. So we can all be criticizing and criticizing, or I could try and make it like 1% better. Yeah. And I also think that life has a way, though, of taking you back to that place, whether or not you want to go to that place. And then you have the choice of the courage to stay or to go. Mm. I've often believed that things like heartbreak and tragedy are so fundamental and important to what it means to be an evolving human. Because every time your heart breaks, you have two options. It can break apart or it can break open. And so I often find when I'm in heartbreak or I'm in tragedy or deep grief, those are the times when my heart is the most like blown open and I can feel and like sense everything around me. And what I try to do is not like elongate the grief or the heartbreaking, but elongate that space of like very soft perceptibility to the world. You know, don't try to harden up too fast, so to speak. In traditional Chinese medicine, they talk about the heart being the center of the emotion of joy. And that in Chinese medicine, they believe that the heart and the lungs are like two lovers, or they're like the deepest partners. Um, and the heart is responsible for joy, and the lungs are responsible for grief. So they kind of beat in tandem with each other. And the idea is that if e either one overtakes, like if you're too joyous all the time and you have no grief in your life, or you're too grief-stricken and you can't find the joy at all, they have the opposite effect of like shutting you down to experiencing truth or madness. But if they work in tandem with each other and they flow between each other and they pulse into each other, all of a sudden you have a system that can perceive love and like the reality of life much more palpably, you know? Two sides of the same coin. Yeah. You know, two things connected sure. in a strange way, I think, when you yeah. were telling me this. Um, we're in a culture that is very quick, especially on the masculine side, but also on the feminine side, to try and mm -hmm. solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, crying Hide is the regarded pain. as a problem. Yeah. So the idea is that whenever you cry, you're immediately affronted with an energy that says, I need to stop this thing that you're doing right now. Yeah. I need yeah. to like turn off that fire yeah. as soon as possible mm -hmm. without ever letting it like crossfade mm -hmm. back into like the normal wavelength. Yeah. So suddenly like sh pain and in other words, like if you shut off one emotion, you actually shut them all off. Yep. 
that's something that people yeah. don't seem to realize. You can't shut off pain. No, no. You have to actually basically say, my emotional experience could have been at 100, but now it's at 10, therefore the pain barely registers. But so doesn't the joy, yeah. right? Yeah. I was having actually this really interesting conversation with someone the other day around the topic of like values in life. Like what do we value in life? And we were talking about things like passion and intensity and all of these emotional states. And they're not just emotional states, but they're just states of energy in the body or like movement, like waves basically. And I was talking about this phenomenon that so often gets lost because one of my core values is the concept of integration. So rather than trying to separate things all into different like categories and compartmentalizing them, or doing the opposite, which is going into this like very extreme version of singularity consciousness of like it's all one. It's like, yeah, sure, it's all connected and it's all one, but it's, it's also <laughs> discerned, guys. Like we also have like, different shit going Giovanna. on. Like yellow and red, they may be one, but they are yellow <laughs> and they are red. You know what I mean? Um, and we were talking about this concept of, you know, passion and love and joy and grief and all of our emotional states kind of being like a weather system. Meanwhile, there is this climate, there is this aspect of being that is so often like just clouded out by the intensity and the absorption into emotion, which is more of like the climate, the person that unites all of these things and observes them and watches them go by. And so what does the process look like for ourselves if we stop trying to control the ocean, we stop trying to control the weather, but rather start rooting in that ability to completely take every single flavor in and then when it's ready to go, let it go. And when it's here, allow it to exist. I mean, circling back to Sufism, this is one of the fundamental principles. Like, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Rumi is that like, each day a new visitor will come to your door. One day it may be a great sorrow, one day it may be a great joy, one day it may be laughter, another might be crying. So just like within Arab culture, it's like if a visitor comes in, you let them in, you never tell them to go. You wait till they're ready to like, pick their shit up and walk out the door. And what does it look like if within ourselves we start looking at it the same way? Right? When it arrives, you allow it to exist for as long as it needs to exist. You get to know it. And then when it goes, khalas, it's gone. And what needs to come in its place will come in its place. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. acceptance of both. Yes. Grief and yeah. love. And, and also like all. Like the conversation about the fact that like emotions are so varied. Like jealousy is an emotion. Anger is an emotion. Excitement is an emotion. Right? Like we have so many emotions, but we tend to polarize and put them into these binaries of like, these are the two things that are considered emotion. It's like, no, man, everything. Energy and motion. It's whatever you are feeling or experiencing. Yeah. Well, similar to what we were talking about, the binary mm -hmm. system and how it mm -hmm. recreates our minds mm -hmm. and AI and all Yeah. That the type of thinking. Cool thing about AI, though, is it's beyond binary. It, now it's going into all of these different options. They're not integrated options, but they're many. Just like humans, right? Mm. We're really not that binary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the wind. Mm. The wind. Mm. I think it's the <coughs> element that speaks to me the most. Mm. Although I find great comfort in water and intrigue mm. in fire. Mm. And, but the wind is the one that somehow... If you stand in the wind and subject yourself to it, it will blow from every way. Mm. And it will blow hard. Sometimes it'll go all together. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it'll come in gusts. Mm. And sometimes it'll come in tornadoes and sometimes in hurricanes. Mm -hmm. But you're there, and if you can at least stand right there, mm -hmm. you can feel where it's trying to take you. Mm. <laughs> We have to learn the whole line. The wind does not blow where the boats appetize for. Mm.
I have this long-running analogy that seemed to make sense to me that just came to me once when I was journaling, that the process of inner work, it's like looking at your somehow semi-functional, semi-floating boat and seeing it's totally tangled up sail and saying, I need to start like untying. You know, it basically does the job, but the sail is... Every time you untie a knot... Mm. Um, you do it with the intention of tying it right, but you can't tie this knot right really until this one's untied and then until this one's untied. And now in that middle process, your sail is going <laughs> flying everywhere. Mm-hmm. And now your entire ship starts going in ways that you could never expect and you've never learned how to do it. So you try mm-hmm. to control it, you try to hold on to it, but like you're not really what you have to keep doing is keep untying those knots because you know that's the only way that once you untie all of them, your sail basically drops and suddenly. All you feel is the wind, but the wind isn't taking you anywhere. Mm-hmm. You just feel it. And that's where you start tying it again and learning how the wind is blowing and tying your sail to travel with it. I feel like that's the sort of process we're all on in some mm-hmm. way. And if we could at least conceptualize ourselves as being on that space, mm-hmm. just as you're saying, just go with it. Yeah. Take it as it comes and li- let it be in your room as long as it's there. Mm-hmm. Instead of turn off the pain now. Yeah. What does a phone do to you? Like even the, the the remotest sensation of discomfort, which comes in the form of what we could describe as boredom, but mm-hmm. actually it's like a, a personal engagement interaction discomfort. Mm-hmm. Like we've we've numbed it with the word like bored, mm-hmm. th- normalized it like it's a concept. We immediately answer that discomfort, never let that arc. It just stops, has that place mm-hmm. and stop, and you mm-hmm. live in this really narrow space of emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And the only way it's like I, <laughs> beginning of last year, I decided to s- stop orgasming. Mm. and the emotional experience of life suddenly like broadened like that interesting just because there was a there's a space of intensity that i was answering all the time with one action mm. and that action would bring me back to some sort of baseline mm-hmm. but what if i just like listen to that intensity and let it just like overcome me increase your capacity to feel increase your capacity to like be able to move more energy throughout your body. I've spoken, I've heard a lot of people speak about like tantric practices of retention or abstinence or so on and so forth. And it's so interesting to hear also the differences and how that expresses itself and what it shows up as, as a function, as a tool in like a female body versus a male body. Um, And I love listening to the experiences of men who have done this because I've heard this like very parallel experience. It's like your intensity, your passion, your desire, all these things, they never go away. They intensify, they grow and then what grows in you if you're doing the practice in a more mindful way is you increase your mental capacity to really expand out and hold all of this intensity and then channel it in whatever way that you decide it makes me think of a really interesting conversation I got to listen into the other day uh, where there was just a gentleman talking about the difference between emotional experience versus emotional expression and how like in our common um, dialogue on a social level, we see people who express their emotions more openly or with more skill or, or that side of it is more expanded, that that's somehow somebody being more emotional in general. But we very rarely look at like the two portions of it. And this is something that I saw a lot in my practices in Buddhism, in Vipassana, in Stoicism, and so on and so forth. People look on the outside looking in, and they speak about this principle that this person is like emotionally not feeling things because they're not expressing that emotion outwardly. But what you're doing actually is increasing your capacity to observe and like process the emotion in your own body. And then expression might not be as expanded, you know? Like that like contrast like a expression and presence. Yeah, expression and presence how they kind of play into each other a little bit. 
and the way that we as a society value one over the other or how we characterize them as being separate things. You know, I see it with the conversation between men and women all the time. Women are, we're socially primed to learn the process of expressing emotion and articulating emotion. Most of our social environments have to do around this principle. Like when I sit with a group of women in my life, oftentimes what happens is like, you know what I mean? Like mm. the first thing that happens is like somebody tells you about a job interview that they had. And like the practical conversation will eventually come, but the real question is like, how was it? How did you feel? What did it bring up for you? Like what is this experience? It's all based around emotional expression. Of course. And then when I find myself in like more masculine environments, it's much more about looking at the practicality and then the emotional bit is like much more like feel it inside and then focus on everything else. It's something that I find really interesting. And, and do you this think... like contrast, yeah. Do you think for the males that there's a specific reason for that in terms of what characterizing that type of thinking? Yeah. Is it, is it more just that we try to move things forward? I think this is one of those... So I have uh, a friend who proposed this idea to me, the idea of culture-shaping questions. Mm. So questions that have no distinct answer. They don't have any singular answer that could ever satisfy what this question actually is. But the questions end up becoming something that starts the theme of a culture, for example, like the exploration of all of the different ways that this question can be answered. For example, what is the value of food? What is God? what is right and wrong. Like these are questions that will never be answered. Mm. But over time, everybody as, adds their little aspect of an answer. And I think with this particular question, it's one of those culture shaping questions. It's like, how could we ever truly know whether this is nature or nurture mm. in an existence and in a reality where those things interplay so intensely that you can't really segregate them, mm. right? Um, for myself personally, I think it's a mixture of things. I definitely think social conditioning has a huge part to do with it because there is such a narrow window of emotional expression that is characterized as appropriate for men in our world. You know, I've had every man I've ever spoken to about this, and me being a woman is, of course, I'm just taking it by word of mouth, and you guys are much more well-versed to speak about the subject. Um, I can speak much more about the female experience, but what I've heard from the men in my life, or people that present even as male in this world, is that there's a very narrow expression, things like ambition, things like competition, things like anger, things like jealousy. These sorts of emotional expressions or emotional states are considered socially acceptable, and then everything else is like, you do that on your own time in private, and you don't share that with the world around you. It makes you less of whatever this is. And I think that's definitely played a massive role. Um, on a more like subtle level, I do think there is differences in the way that we are wired. I mean, if you think about our hormonal environments, if you think about our physical environments, these things interplay. Mind and body are not separated from each other. For example, with my hormonal cycle, every single month I go through this very intense switch through hormones that prime me to think, see, and experience things differently. And at this point in time, I've had like 250 of these cycles in a lifetime. So I've gotten like relatively good at being able to parse out what these different states are. Um, and I do think that these things play a role. Now, whether they express themselves in that direction or that social conditioning, I don't know. I have no idea. So, but I do think that you guys would be able to better speak on the topic than I would, being men in this world. You know, there are also emotions that yeah. they are fully permitted to experience, mm. but haven't really found a way to experience them such to the point that of great release. Mm. Like one of the reasons I think Sohaib's a chill that dude is because uh, <laughs> um, he laughs a lot. My name's Salam. Yeah. Salam's a chill that dude. He laughs a lot. Yeah. He laughs so much. And yeah. uh, the laugh, 
even if you don't cry outwardly, which sometimes you're still going to have to do, mm. um, the laughter is a way of just like letting that energy sort of enter that space that it's trying to reach. It's like in a room that you're holding it all the mm. time, right? Um, and all of that can be really healing as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think saying you should just cry in front of each other. It's just one of those things that, like, this is a power-sensitive culture. And mm. I recognize the concept of uh, masculine um, prioritization of mm. power and not wanting f those people, because everybody has potential enemies in mm. some way or another. Um, you don't want to offer your enemies something they can use against you. And yeah. it comes from a place that's like, like every guy gets it, you know, like you get mm. it. That doesn't mean that in front of your wife mm. or your sister mm -hmm. that you have to be closed. Mm. That they will look at you as a weaker man. It's like, mm. no. If For those who know you, they'll know that your pain is something that is coming and is expressed and is necessary to be expressed. Mm -hmm. And in fact, allows you to see like what fire drives this person. Mm -hmm. To be able to understand who they actually are rather than like close yourself it's a much better gift you can give your family to like be open mm. not to like pretend like you don't have feelings mm -hmm. but all of the parents here are pretending like they don't have feelings yeah and, so and what, what are the social the implications get? of that right like when you have generations of children that are born into a world where they don't they don't have modeled in front of them the behavior around emotional experiencing or emotional expression or the skill set because like emotional expression is it's a skill set because we all have very deep emotional experiences, whether or not society gives us a narrow or wide range for what we can feel, we are going to feel it anyways, right? But the emotional expression plays a huge role on where these emotions show up and how they show up. And that's what I find so interesting. Like, I agree with you. I'm assuming when you're talking about this culture, you're speaking about like Middle Eastern culture in specific here. What can I know? Or I, just male just culture in general. What yeah. I see here, yeah. and it's purely yeah. anecdotal. How could I know? Yeah. But this is how it seems to me. Yeah. But that's what I, I find so interesting about it is because when you create social agreements and social laws in some degree about the way that you express yourself, you will start to, uh, there's this really cool term I learned, it's like desire smuggling, it's like emotional smuggling. Like you have a desire or an emotional need and no matter how much you suppress it or deny it, it's still going to work to express itself. It's like it has its own life force independent of your willpower. Like it's energy in motion and it's trying to get somewhere and if you try to block it or reroute it, it will by its own device keep going to where it's trying to go. It's kind of like the sun. You know, the sun is like, it's just barreling through space. We don't know exactly where, but nothing's going to stop it. And if something does try to stop it, it'll circumvent and it'll keep going, but just from a different route. And so I see this in both communities, because in women, we also have a narrow um, avenue of emotional expression. Like there's some emotions that are considered socially taboo for women to experience in multiple different ways. Um, so the idea of like desire and emotional smuggling is this idea that like if you have an emotional need, an emotional experience, an emotional feeling, something that wants to express itself, it will express itself. But if you lack the skill set to find a way to express it in a healthy way that like benefits you or allows you to process it, it'll start expressing itself in ways that are very destructive and you won't know exactly where it's coming from. And I wonder how much of like the social issues that we have within our community here in the location that we're at right now, um, surrounding like violence and aggression and overdominance and corruption and power smuggling and power hoarding are a part of not having the emotional skill set to take these experiences and put them in a healthy way. This is an entire form of education, emotional education. And yeah. there have to be small things we can do, right? For like sure. really, really little things that yeah. somehow quietly 
infiltrate these types of practices into people's yeah. behaviors without having yeah. to preach to them that they have to change their ways. Yeah. That's not an effective way to change yeah. anybody's behavior. Yeah. But you can easily signal to a culture the concept <laughs> that like a mother and child ought to hug each other for a longer period of time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, and that the child, we're talking about adult children, like hug your mom, mm -hmm. you know, just hug your mother. S mm -hmm. Spend a little time hugging your mother. It's like, start with something that's so, ex hug your grandmother, you know, just hug her. Yeah. Like small things that suddenly like begin to open up that heart space and allow you to see like, hey, wait a minute, Oof, there's something right there. And allow yeah. people to feel that like, that power of that w wave that pushes yeah. them to say there's much more there. Yeah. Like, you don't need that much. Yeah. We're all sitting, we're sitting right under the surface. Yeah. I don't, we say we've ruined people like all these Gen Z, whatever kids, whatever they, whatever age they call them. I'm not worried <laughs> at all. You put them in a space where suddenly they're actually entering the heart space and like, oh, they'll shift into human gear just like that. Yeah. Because guess what? They're people. Yeah. If anything, they're much more uh, sensitive, I would say, than our generation sure. in a lot no, of ways. Yeah. We were a lot more like rebellious and like, uh, am I allowed to swear? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm about to say like fuck the system because I did it it's done okay anyways like we were a lot more like rebellious and a lot fiery you know what I mean and I find in the younger generation when I sit down with a lot of them and I speak there's a really deep like emotional sensitivity to what's happening in this world it's, it's really beautiful but I agree with you I think it it reminds me of the conversation we were having the night in here the other night in here about uh, the trash program mm. idea um, I think the idea of modeling behavior rather than preaching that behavior is really valuable and if you can model that behavior and there's been enough work done in a certain field where there's all of these resources and all these tools that people can drop into once they've tried it a few times and be like I really like this I want to keep doing it or this feels really good or I want to understand more of you know the inner work like why is my sale so hard to catch the wind of my emotions when it's being modeled to me um, I think it's much more effective I even, I've tried this multiple times as well. Like if I'm having a conversation with somebody and we're talking about emotionality and it's getting into this like really weird logical debate, like talking about research studies and like Heart Math Institute, no, 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 no. And I'm like, neither of us is anywhere closer to having any kind of an emotional experience with each other. This is all intellectual. It's really crazy if you just drop in and instead of like speaking about these principles, you just check in onto how someone's doing in like a tactful way. And you just like drop in with them. That alone can actually change people's lives. Like when I was 21, 22, I went to a gathering in Beida in the desert. And it was the first time I'd ever been to something like this because it wasn't a music festival like we did. We made music and we danced at night and we made fires and fire spinning. But during the daytime, there would be all of these like huge circles of a group of like 20 to 30 strangers with each other, having a lot of like really powerful, emotionally vulnerable conversations and working through things together and never through the process of like lecture or preach. It would just be like a check-in circle where you have a really talented facilitator that just knows how to ask the right questions and then just like also knows how to like shut up and listen <laughs> when the person starts answering and like let them go through their process and do something called active listening where like you're genuinely listening and anything you say is simply like going deeper into something someone's already shared and then creating the spaciousness for them to unfold it in front of you, you know? We reached some really powerful points. Like we had people crying and wailing and like there was this one man who stumbled in from the States. He was from the South. He was a black man from the South. And he had no idea what we were doing. He was just walking through the desert and he saw this like, group of people sitting in a circle crying and he was like, what's going on over here? And he sat down and by the end of like an hour with a group of complete strangers, this man who'd always been like the strong protector man for his family and unable was literally being held by a group of 15 people while he cried through the pain of having never expressed certain sorrows in his life, you know? 
I think there's a lot of power to it. I think there's a lot of power to it. And based on the conversation we were having and what you were talking about, about like being at home with like your wives or your girlfriends or your sisters or whatever and being having that space for emotional expression that isn't welcome in the outside world, I get it. And also being a sister and a wife and a girlfriend at different times in my life, I've also noticed that for a lot of the men in my life, like I've had this deep grief for them because it's like there is this space where they're allowed to do it and then the women in their lives can't always be an entire community for them. And oftentimes what they're longing for is to be able to be seen by the men in their lives. You know, I've seen like the processes of men's circles and I've always been very curious. It's not my space, so I've obviously never been in a men's circle. Um, but I'm curious, like, what do you guys think about the principle of like creating spaces of men holding space for other men's emotional experience and expression? I think that would be a, a brilliant thing to do. And I know mm. there are spaces that offer that. Mm. And uh, I think it would be necessary. Mm -hmm. They're just not marketed very well. That's pretty yeah. much it. Like, it's like, there's mm -hmm. so many of these, and you just see, like, the strongest and, like, what you would think of a macho man yeah. to be just, like, wailing and just, like, really, yeah. and uh, that sense of, like, w when I spoke to Ahmed, mm. and he opened up to me about how he felt about me, and it was coming to him as negative, and put, his thoughts put him down rather than up mm. in my relationship, in his relationship to me. After that, man, we hugged, and it was like it was a great hug, and <laughs> I think we need more of that. Mm. It's such an out of character thing for us in the Arab world to sort of offer a friend a real hug. Yeah. Um, like I recognize that I don't have, I don't interact with a lot of physical touch with people, and mm. I always kind of figured, well, I I keep myself open to it, but it's like someone on stage. If they're insecure, people kind of that they take that energy because mm -hmm. I don't really engage people that way because I never mm. really knew where you can, where you can't. There was just like this. Mm -hmm. really my parents never had a lot of it. Mm -hmm. so, so what it does is it sort of isolates you from that whole domain of interaction with the mm -hmm. world, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then you have some people whose way of doing something like that is so just like forthcoming and generous by itself, people like Ozzy and Panda, mm. you know, that suddenly it's, in, with, in this context, you begin to engage physically in such a different way because mm -hmm. they hold a space, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's so strong. And that's what we're talking. You can't film a bunch of macho guys weeping <laughs> like if you want to present this story it mm. doesn't work that's not mm. like if you're on the outside so that's exactly and you what see it on your away phone from. you will not understand the context by which you got there mm. which misses the whole point but can you intrigue me with enough of context mm -hmm. that will allow me to think like you know what let me give that a try yeah. hey you know what like I'm sitting inside a room and there are a bunch of doors one door says anger one door says pride one door says arrogance one door says kindness one door says like uh, sorrow mm. um, this door's locked this door's locked this door's locked but there's a certain energy and it's going to like push it wherever it can and where is it going to go it's going to go to the open doors and it's going to go to the ones that have the biggest doors right in Jordan mm. now we have like so many people express these things that should be coming out in a healthy way a sorrow mm. uh, as anger and what that anger does is it like it also attacks it, it bites away at the at love and 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 joy, like it eats it from it, right? Mm. And so before you know it, you're just an angry person. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people walking around this environment that have just gone that way. Mm. And it just, it all starts, it's simply just letting those emotions out. That mm. concept of showing weakness is also mitigated. And every great leader knew this, that every great leader on this planet, male or female, knew that emotions had to be expressed. And they'd have figured out a way in which I am going into the space and this is where I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm not showing weakness. This mm -hmm. is where I show the strength to show my weakness. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the key point that people miss entirely. Mm -hmm. Like, 
the fact that you don't want to cry is because you're afraid of expressing something, which means mm -hmm. actually you're expressing your weakness through your abstinence of it. Yeah. You're expressing yeah. your fear. Yeah. And living in fear is not what a strong person does. Mm -hmm. Logically. That's exactly. But that's what the support is for, you know, mm -hmm. to, to support them through that and to make them feel like they can. They can. Yeah. So it comes probably from it comes from parents who not, don't maybe don't necessarily offer that space to their mm -hmm. to their kid due to mm -hmm. whatever it is like the, the clan system or the power structures mm -hmm. and a the couple hunger videos. for power. It's a couple videos that that target moms, for example. Here's a, a and it has to be presented in a really attractive way. This is mm -hmm. what we do very well, mm -hmm. uh, and presented in a very attractive way that just speaks exactly to the heart of it. But it says, "Here, moms, here's a concept of the way you can interact with your child. Present it mm -hmm. like it's a fashionable thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? A way to connect and bring real something real to your interaction with your child. Yeah. Could you, if we sat for ten minutes, could we come up with like a, a few simple ways that if you said this to a bunch of moms, if you masked your intentions beyond this, like." game that people can play can mm. you begin to open up the flower of your society from like mm. its root points like mm. the interrelation between parents and children mm -hmm. one, one of the most beautiful videos I've seen on, on Facebook or these you know is um, this bl black taekwondo center mm. and where you see the kid with the teacher in front of everybody mm -hmm. and they're all kids they're like six, six eight to mm -hmm. eight years old and he's, cr he's crying because he He's experiencing pain because he's trying to break a, a piece of, of cardboard or wood. He, he, he hits it and then he starts crying. He says, hit it again. Mm. He hits it and he goes crying. And, and then after that, they just like look at each other and say, why, why are you crying? And going through that process of understanding where that source comes from. Or Another one was a father and son and they're just crying they're just mm. together mm -hmm. and they're holding each other and every all these boys are watching and then there's this, this elder who is holding everything you know like he's creating the space to allow them to express yeah. and for for black men that's like absolutely so crucial yeah because yeah. they're the people who close mm. the most right you know what i find really interesting this is like on the backbone of a, a topic i've been thinking about a lot um, when I'm here in this country and when I'm in the States and when I'm in Canada and all these different spaces and you're, com you're spending time amongst communities that have these very interesting value values and not just values that people hold but values that they offer into the world and into the communities in which they exist of like resilience and strength and the ability to like kind of like pick your shit up and keep going like this is a joke that I've heard in almost every immigrant household <laughs> everywhere mm. all over the world and including in the Middle East it's this um, running joke about how like you know when you were a kid and you were hanging out with your friends who were like white folk, you know? And the, the way that issues are dealt with, like just that like rapidity through which you get back up and you deal with things, it's like a running joke. Um, it's a very beautiful quality, and I've reflected on this in my own character, this huge value on resilience, the ability to keep going, the ability to fight through things, these very valuable like warrior-like qualities that exist in the communities of like black men and Arab men and Palestinian men and Palestinian communities, this is really intense. And I think it interplays with how difficult it is to have conversations about mental health in the Arab world or in the worlds of people who've lived through severe oppression and trauma most recently. It's almost like there is this low-lining level of CPTSD that exists in our communities. And there is this sense in our nervous systems and in our bodies that tells us it is not safe and it is not the time 
to go into the soft things. You just have to keep going. Yeah. And that there may eventually come a time where the life or world has become more hospitable to you dropping into your softness and you dropping into your emotional expression. Because oftentimes when we go through a highly traumatic experience, people imagine that you would go into a panic, people imagine that you would go into all of these different reactions, angers, rage, whatever. More often than not, people freeze. Just go numb. They just, everything just stops. And they go like a little bit numb, exactly. It's like you have fight, flight, and then you have freeze and fawn. Like there's two other responses to, to stress and to trauma and so on and so forth. So in our communities, I think it expresses itself as like just a toughness, right? Like you're not depressed. I had this conversation with a 40-something-year-old man that I'd met the other day. He was from Kuwait, been through the Kuwait War, from Palestine, been through the um, Second Intifada. Like he's been around a lot. And we were talking about trauma and the processing of trauma. And I remember he, he said something to me at one point along the lines of like, sorry, I was going to say <laughs> um, You know, like basically I have walked through fields of dead bodies. I have watched people that I have loved die and be on the floor. I have lived through war. I have lived through all of these other sorts of other things. Of course a breakup isn't trauma. And I'm like, but but it is <laughs> <laughs> like both of those things are yeah, trauma yeah. like it's this game of like the pain olympics and mm. i think it lives in a lot of our communities you Everyone. Know? And, like it's and so Couples. that's why it's so challenging like you're talking about this video yes i think it's totally possible to make these really beautiful things that impact people but when we're talking about the longevity of change there's these like gordian knots like when you were talking about the sale um, my mind went to do you know the myth of the gordian knot I feel in the end that there's just some knots that you can't untie and as a result all other work that you do Kind of, but it, it has a lot more depth to it than that. So the concept of the Gordian knot is this knot that was tied by the gods. This knot that was said whoever can untie and unravel this knot will be able to understand and achieve like the fundamental nature of what it means to live a good life, so to speak, or the philosopher's stone concepts. Um, and so everybody came to it and they tried to pull a string from this end and then it tightened in another end and they tried to pull a string in that end and it tightened from another end and so on and so forth. Like this very delicate, deliberate way of like trying to slowly untie this knot. And in the end of it, a man shows up. I think it was Alexander the Great, because Alexander the Great seems to do everything. Um, he <laughs> came true. with like a really sharp sword, and he just sliced it down the middle, and it all unraveled. And then once it unraveled, he was able to put it back together as like a really huge, long line. You know? And it makes me think of this concept of like the elephant in the room. I see it more that way than thinking that there's nothing that can be not be untied. Like you will spend your entire life like pulling at all the strings and pulling at all the strings, but until we talk about like the fundamental essential nature and slice it open, we can't begin to reconstruct it. Hmm. You know? Mm. Yeah. You gotta start at the basic the baseline yeah. of what it is that's yeah. pushing your energy along. Yeah. yeah. And I've had this moment with many people in my family because like I've struggled being someone who was raised, you know, half between worlds and having like the privilege and the comfort to be able to like explore my inner world and go to mental health workshops and read all the books and, you know, be in these environments where war is a memory of my family that I hold in my identity and my bones, but it's not an experience that I've had to vividly live through in my life. It's not like a trauma within my lifetime that I have to process and deal with and so on and so forth and everything that comes with it. And there's been times where I've sat with my grandparents or my parents or whatever else it might be. And there's this measure of kindness that comes in of recognizing that to ask them to do some of the work on themselves, whether that be mental health or behavior wise that they would have to do, what you're actually asking of them is the task of uncovering this like uh, skeleton's closet 
of severe war trauma that you have no concept of. It's a big undertaking. Somebody doing the inner work on themselves for these very surface level things, it starts out very playful and very like joyous and like going to a movement circle or a men's circle or you know what I mean, being in a particular environment, but when the work gets real, it gets real. And it gets real fast, you know? It's quite the undertaking. Yeah. It's a constant challenge that I face with at least in my head with my mm. father mm. and this the sort of like the desire for him to talk about the things that happened that's it yeah. you know and uh there's definitely a very strong wall yeah that i'm still trying to like with fear as well so yeah. sometimes i do encounter that fear but yeah. sometimes when i don't um yeah it's difficult so mm. i understand um yeah the work needs to continue yeah my father is in his late 60s and i don't think he's ever told anyone the stories of the war. Tata's father as well yeah. in the Lebanese war. Yeah, yeah. She never knew things and then she yeah. would know it and she's like, what? Yeah, yeah. Like, cause he lost part of his ear or something. Yeah. I think that's why it's such an interesting position to be put in as like the diasporic kids, mm. you know? Because we, we get exposed to these principles and these ideas and these practices and these ways of being that are so fundamental and would benefit our societies and our communities so, so well. Um, but when you come into the climate and the environment of these communities where you're not talking about you know, the kind of social environment of the last 100, 150 years in a place like Canada or America or different European nations, you're putting it into a different context. And it's like what you were saying earlier about context, like you can show what's happening, but without the context of the environment or how you get there, it becomes kind of inert, like it doesn't have a very strong impact to really understand. And here in like the Swana region, we're dealing with a very different context than the places where we're learning about these things. So we like we bring them home and we're like, we should be doing this. And then we run up against these walls and we're like, oh shit, we can't do it that way. Okay. <laughs> you know, like it's a very different environment that you're walking into. And I think oftentimes people get very discouraged and they're like, all right, well, it's too hard to do it here because it doesn't work the way that mm. I know how to do it. So I'm just gonna like peace out and go do this somewhere where it's easier to mm. do it. But I think it's really a process of like engagement and curiosity of like what can that look like in a different context that's not quite so clear or simple, you know? And I'm finding a lot of women to mm. go into this type of thinking of uh, yeah. understanding where they, their parents and their grandparents came from yeah. and um, putting it into a science even like or just actually trying to understand it yeah. and wanting to share that um, yeah. and talk about the concept of shame for example yeah. or the yeah. concept of of um, your how your religion shapes how yeah. you act you yeah. know war of course well you know it's really interesting generationally speaking so I have this um, this magazine in my room it's called Al Haya Al Haya is like a Swana region magazine that is female run um, where basically what it does is it goes and it captures the stories of women from all over the Swana region. So like Tunis, Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, like the whole shebang. And it brings them together to tell stories that would otherwise be seen as mm -hmm. like thawda, you know, mm -hmm. like otherwise be seen as like how don't talk about this shit in public. Um, and I bought it and I was fascinated by it as like my generation of what it is to be an Arab woman. And then my, my father's wife, who's not that much older than me, she's in her 50s, I think, so there's like only a 30 year gap or so. 
um, she started reading it. She's like, see, I don't know why we would even want to talk about these things. These aren't things that we should be talking about. There's much more serious issues in the world to discuss. And I'm like, but why is there a competition for airspace? Mm -hmm. Why can't we have the conversations about the much more serious things like war and economy and politics and the whole nine yards and also have a more personalized conversation about the way that we allow story to exist in our own communities and what that means about the direction we're going in. Right, um, because we're starting to get to a point where, like, a lot of the generations of our communities are no longer thinking a certain way, and we're kind of moving up into being the ancestors and the elders in our communities very soon. Like, it doesn't feel like it because right now we're all like, you know, I'm still young, but yeah. like, it's not that long. Like, if anything, of living through a decade has taught me as an adult is that a decade is not that long of a period of time. Yeah. Like, it is. There's a lot you can do, mm. and also, like, it moves. It'll go before you know it. You're like, oh here I am again, you know? And so we are moving into that path where we're no longer the youth. We're at that precipice point where we're about to step out of being the youth of a community into being the adults and the elders of a community, mm. right? And so how do we shape that? And what do we choose to shape out of it is a really interesting conversation to me as well. Yeah, but it's, I think that storytelling is so powerful because sometimes you don't want to suggest or preach what a story is supposed to teach you. And I found the most impactful and powerful films, stories, uh, documentaries that I've ever watched, they don't have a very clear agenda. They're not coming in and telling you this is what this story means. They simply present the story in such a good way that you come out of that story and you by yourself start to see the implications and the meanings of it when you go out into the world. And I think in the Arab world specifically, as we do that, as we go out and we capture the stories of our grandmothers and our grandfathers and like our cousins and our sisters and different people living in our countries, and we just tell those stories without fully removing ourselves as an observer, but really making that active listening thing into like the process of filmmaking of like, when I go into a space, I don't have a set of questions to get you to answer exactly what it is that I wanna know about you. I have a set of questions that can help create a container through which we can really explore what the story inside of you is. And then when you give me opinions of that story, I catch on to the part that had the most emotional charge for you, and I go deeper into it, and the story unveils and unravels itself. When we create media like that, when we create stories like that, and you release them en masse, they start conversations. They start conversations that inevitably change a space without you even really having to suggest what should be done. I remember when I was in Tunis, one of the most impactful things I saw the entire time I was there is there was one day I was in my apartment in Sidi Bou Said. I was just like, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was like editing documentary script or something like this. And then all of a sudden I hear this like really powerful drumming coming from downstairs. And I look out the window and there's like this massive crowd of like 300 people walking through these tiny alleyways of Sidi Bou Said. And there was no celebration. There was no like particular holiday. I asked everyone, they're like, no, we're just doing it. And in the center of this movement, there was like an open gap space and they were chanting. Uh, it was Arabic, I think it was Quranic chanting. And the, the square was lined with like men from the community. Um, that seemed to be like, it seemed Sufi to me in nature, but they seemed to be holding this containered space. And then everybody was kind of swaying and dancing and going into this state as they was marching. It was like a marching dhikr almost. And then at random, random members of the crowd, usually men, would come into the center and they would start dancing and they would go into this like almost cathartic state because they've been chanting and singing and dancing for like almost an hour at this point. So you go into a trance-like state. And so they would go into the center and this group of elder men would be holding them 
not like holding them physically, but they'd be holding this container and they would allow them to go through. And there was one particular man who was responsible for going to the person, going through their catharsis in the center of the circle and just like holding their head and praying over them as they cry or they scream or they dance or they do whatever else it was. And it made me think a lot about how our cultures in their essence prior to, or I guess now etched within all of the war trauma that has happened in these spaces actually fosters a male culture that is very expressive emotionally. And that is very like, there's a lot of like uh, union between the male community where like you are meant to be like a whole ass human being that feels things and expresses things and cries and writes poetry of all of the love that lives in your heart and all of the sorrow that exists in this beautiful world that you exist in and so on and so forth. So at the roots of our indigeneity, this was actually very well rooted. And in the conversations that I've had with Bedouin communities where we really go into like the old ways of the people prior to all of the civilizations and all the conquering. Because for us, colonization is not like this new fad thing that happened 200 years ago. Like we've been doing this to each other for thousands of years, you know what I mean? So when you trace back to the indigenous ways, you gotta go way, 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 way back to get access to them. But in a lot of old traditional Arab tribes, the actual structure was that the women were at the center of decision making and then the men would just simply go out and enact those decisions on behalf of. So we had these completely different social structures, completely. Um, and like we could go for hours into like what brought us to where we are now. Um, but I think it's a much more interesting conversation of like, okay, so what does that mean about how it expresses itself where we are now and how do we foster it, you know? Yeah. I feel like Rob has, <laughs> I feel like he has a thought that's like just bubbling. Just trying to see how to enter the thought. It just makes me want to go to Tunis. Man, Tunis is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I am like the Tunis spokesperson. I should approach their tourism board and be like, let me talk about Tunis all over the world. I want to see that. Or just talk about Tunis and send them the clips that are pertinent. Yeah, you know, <laughs> make little videos. <laughs> I think yeah. action, it's a great gig. I should actually go. Oh, them. <laughs> action has um, is a much stronger currency than yeah. promise. Yeah, yeah. And it's also when you have the tools that we have, mm. microphones, cameras. Action is not so far away. In fact, like uh, distributable action. Yeah. You know, you sit yeah. in front of a microphone, you say a couple funny things for, you know, three minutes, and then you've got something to send somebody. And if it's particularly good, somebody with a discerning ear will be like, this is particularly good. Let's do it. You Let's go. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, I'm just saying that the opportunity is so abound yeah. that most people can't even begin to conceive mm. of what it is. Um, that's why I'm trying to bring people into this house who are all in that space of recognizing like infinite opportunity mm -hmm. and wanting to like dive into that. Mm. You know, I'm th I'm thinking w one it's of like the things that pad. doesn't work with the the, the male um, mm. circles, mm. the the thing that is currently dysfunctional about mm -hmm. the whole phenomenon of it and its perception, is that people don't get it. Yeah. They don't get why, right? Yeah. But if you could bring them to a space, at least from the outside, of getting it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to sell it to them, but just to mm -hmm. get it. And I could be like, you know, when you watch that, yeah, and you see the that's a form of man circle. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. It's a man yeah. circle. Oh, but yeah. you see the elder, and you're like, 
respect. hundred percent respect. Yeah. And it's like it's it's so cathartic. It must <laughs> be for everyone to experience yeah, it together. Yeah. And you it's see like, like the, the shriveled muscles next to the young adolescent muscles yeah. next to each other in the same types of bodies with the same yeah. musculature. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. all of that <laughs> was so powerful. Yeah, yeah. But you get it. Like you just get it. And I'm sure that this Tunisian tradition is the same. Yeah. Like you can somehow see that these men are here to hold you because this is a thing you're all supposed to go through often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you let's say you're the guy who's crying and nobody else cries, oh, it's it's very hard to cry. Yeah. But if everyone knows what crying is, then you're the guy who's crying. You know that everyone else there is like, yeah. they get it. Yeah. yeah, you know they yeah. get it. It's like the yeah. way Panda holds you. Yeah. <laughs> you like you feel totally held by this dude, <laughs> and that's <laughs> just surrender basically. Exactly. You just gotta surrender. Exactly, hundred yeah. percent. We can yeah. make it a lot of male surrender in Jordan. Yeah, yeah. It'd be pretty wild. <laughs> male <laughs> surrender. Surrender. <laughs> this is gonna be such an interesting house for me to be. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> get this to observe like, so much. <laughs> channel Do you six. That we're still in just warm up right now. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. This, this is, is the quiet before the storm. I know. I know. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Fully aware. <laughs> I don't even know what's coming. I have no plan. There's no plan. <laughs> There's just a sense that combining energies will be a thing that will do something. But like, you know how we were talking about the um, the conductor the other day? I think that that's slightly what you're doing, though. You're like, you're picking up on all of these different energies and how they vibe into each other. And you're like, let's just bring it in. And exactly. See I what, need this. What I song need this. comes out of this? A little bit more yeah. of this. What are the qualities this. here? But it's the qualities not so there. much like... Yeah. Oh, you know, I think Jumana might bring it too much. I already have some of this. Like, Shahrazad, man. Shahrazad. Shahrazad, Abra, we didn't choose. I'm all of them. Okay, all yeah. of them. Okay, great. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, where was I going? Um, You're in Mutanabi. <laughs> for me, I just see the idea that there are opportunities that present themselves pretty sure. naturally. Yeah. It's like how, you know, actually, my, my sister just got engaged and mm. she's living in my mom's house with yeah. this dude. I don't know them super well. I'm still trying to manage uh, this whole situation. Mm-hmm. In other words, like I could use a decent place to live. And I think, <laughs> well, I've got a decent place to live. And we'd already <laughs> talked about that idea at some point when mm-hmm. we said we're looking and you said in kind of a, a peppy way, oh, you need a roommate. So yeah. we figured, okay, there's yeah. it, exp- it expressed like the desire <laughs> for it. So to me, I'm like, I'm listening, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, there's an option. Let's just take it. Yeah. And then so I, I, it's almost like de facto. I, I think we have to figure out ways to like disband a little bit. But once we have <laughs> some more boys in the mixture, it'll happen by itself. You know what I mean? Like, so I will feel less pressure to be like Rob's. <laughs> no. All of them. <laughs> Go back and find all of the clips. Yeah, it's just like applause for a second. It's the only way. This is the way. This is the way. Uh, Salam, my idea for him. And I reckon actually there's a good idea that sure. you, there's a parallel that you could experience. Mm. Is I just thought that I could film him to be this sort of new cultural ideal. Mm. You know, but just a it's almost cartoonish, but about just the, yeah. this guy, this yeah. image. We did it for a school. It was called the Sol- It's called the X school's name, Gentleman. Um, <laughs> um, Salty Barnes. Salty Barnes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Salam. <laughs> you gotta, get, you gotta keep, stay on it, you know. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. You gotta. Keep, I got you. It's been a while, you know. Yeah, yeah. We haven't been in the podcast space very much. We've only just been like warming up. We were doing this like every other day. For mm-hmm period of time you know? <laughs> we were warmed up you have to get the vibe you have to understand how this works sure. <laughs> go on what's it up be look i went to california mm. do you know why i went to california why did you go to california because my friend willie mm. um he said to me i'm going to a halloween party in the north of california <laughs> with a bunch of pirates <laughs> i said 
Willie, could you describe to me what you mean by pirates? They they are self-proclaimed pirates. <laughs> <laughs> they live offshore, north of California. They have a three-day Halloween party. I'm going. <laughs> I said, can I come? He's like, yes, because nobody here wants to come. <laughs> That's why he's messaging you. <laughs> Just like the experience we had in Joshua Tree the year before, where it was a total of, over the period of three months, hey, we're going to Joshua Tree in California. I remember you live in San Diego. Um, I don't need the retreat and two days. That's my only experience of this guy. Mm-hmm. And, but I wrote him a message because I knew he lived over there. I, That's mm-hmm. not far away. Do you want to join us? We'll have an extra bedroom. <laughs> he said, yes, that sounds like a good idea. When? This date. Great. Four messages. Mm-hmm. Two months later, I haven't heard a thing from him. <laughs> Zero. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But he said he was coming. Okay. We told him the date. And so we get to Joshua Tree and they're all asking like, is Willie coming? I'm like, I assume he's coming. <laughs> And then, like, w- the evening begins to set, and then phone buzzes. I'll be there at 10.30. There he was. I like this style. It reminds me a lot of the Bedouins. Like, you don't need to talk too much about shit. Like, you've decided that you're doing something. Khalas, when the time comes, you do it. <laughs> you said <laughs> you you're going to do it. Like, where are you? Yeah, let's, let's go. Because <laughs> you, you need a reminder. You're going to forget. But it gets complicated with the Bedouins, because they also have Arab standard timing in check, right? Oh. So, like, you'll know that you're going to meet up in the evening. But when in the evening is not clear. You just got to <laughs> hang out. And, like, sometimes they do this thing where they're like, just follow your heart. If you've been waiting for a while and you don't want to wait anymore, just leave. Yeah. And if I show up and you're not there, then I'll just keep going. Exactly. I'm like, okay, tamam. No, In a German context, this would never work. <laughs> but here, it's understood. It's Those understood. are two systems that work. Yeah. Right? To me, yeah. the, the way we created that system that doesn't put an onus on punctuality is yeah. to say that there's always a vibe happening between a group of people. Yeah. And at any given time, point, if you want to join, it's like yeah. you're missing out if you're not joining. Yeah. You're going to join when it's like, when you're yeah. going to join. But there's also like infinite possibilities and routes that you could take. And, and if it doesn't routes. work here, that's fine. Because there's these, all these other possibilities of what I could and should be doing tonight. Look, what you'll have here is that you'll have <laughs> Willie and Panda, yeah. and it's like there's just certain days which that yeah. it'll just be a Shahrazad and Panda storyline. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's how they happen. It's all these storylines that begin to like yeah. little combinations of your groups, new yeah. new additions to the groups that yeah. start happening. The yeah. random people that end up coming over and then become a fixture of a exactly, household. Exactly. Yeah, Some I've had this happen many times. <laughs> that was Panda. I mean, he came yeah. over once for poetry night and didn't leave for six weeks. <laughs> but who am I to talk? That's exactly what I did. <laughs> I, I, so I joined him. I flew to San Francisco after I met my friend, my Irish Belgian friend in Canada. Mm. And um, I meet him in San Francisco airport. It's kind of really complicated to find it. And at this point, I still have no details. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we're going to. I don't know anything. I just said, that mm-hmm. sounds like a wild thing. I'm do a wild thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do the wild thing. Mm-hmm. I pick him up. And now he's got short hair. I remembered it with long curly hair. And, um, you know, we, we get the supplies, the California supplies from the, the various options that you need to present your passport at at the door uh, in California. And we go to this place. And it's like, it's north of Stockton. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of Stockton? No. It's like this place of California that's like the rough place okay. of California. At least that's mm. how it's spoken about. Mm. You know, it was like, warning, Dirbelak, <laughs> over there. And you get to this like one horse town street and then you turn left and then you're basically just driving along what looks like a Louisiana Delta. It's just like driving on one dust road and there's a canal cut next to you and it goes curving, 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 curving. It's just this canal. You go for like six kilometers. And our address says something like Eagle Creek Road. There's no number. There's no nothing. It's just go to that road, and that's where the ferry is. Mm. 
It's okay, you just go on the road, and you're just going deeper and deeper and deeper in the road, you get nothing. And then at some point, it's just like dead end with the right turn, it says ferry this way. Just <laughs> one little like handwritten It's the sign. end of the world. It's based, yeah. And so you go to a drive, and then there's this, this fer ferry, it's run by a couple, and this dude's got like missing teeth. He's always got those American glasses, kind of gelled hair, kind of skinny, mm. skinny guy. He takes your $8 voucher, which you should have gotten from the gas station, unless you say, like we said, you here for Heidi? Yeah, we know Heidi. <laughs> oh, come on up. <laughs> so we don't pay for the ferry. Mm. And you get to it, and there's like this... This woman bought um, a boat that was a Michelin restaurant that was like a barge. Uh, the restaurant was on the boat, and it was docked. And she bought the boat, and then she moved the whole boat to this offshore place that you can, o can only get to by ferry. As a result, there's no law enforcement around there. Mm -hmm. Now, these people live in a space in the United States that is outside the law entirely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's an anarchist community. Wow. And so we just, we partied with them for three days. And I, I thought it was going to be like wild, you know, but it was wild in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. Like there's such a group of misfits mm -hmm. that, but there was also such a beautiful energy that at the same time was really tragic. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how it started. And then I drove down. Um, I was going to imagine this. Mm -hmm. Actually imagine this. I was, the morning I woke up that we were going to go down to San Diego. We were both going to fly together from San Francisco to San Diego. Mm. My mom was ringing in my ears at some point that she said, you should see the Big Sur coastline. And I knew that that's between San Francisco. And I'd never been up north. It's one of the most beautiful. It's and so I had that. I was like, okay. Yeah. And maybe I could see my friend Raja again. Like Raja, I went, like, went surfing with him. Um, that morning, I got a message from Satine, <laughs> this woman I met in um, the Tantra Festival. And she had hung out in California. She'd said three weeks before, like, oh, you're coming. I'll, I'll hang out. I'll stay. Mm. Um, I didn't realize that just like Willie, she just means what she says. So <laughs> she just stayed in California for three more weeks because it turned out I was coming. Mm. She says, are you coming? And she's in Los Angeles. I figured I was going to go down to San Diego, go back up. Mm. No. Uh, okay, you know what? Um, maybe I'll just keep my rental car. It turns out to be the cheapest that way and drive it all the way down to San Diego. So, okay, mm. Ozzy, Willie, you're going on the airport. <sighs> And um, you're going to the airport, and I'm going to drive. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know where I was going. I drove along the Big Sur coastline. I got the sunset. It was beautiful. And then I drove two hours in the pitch darkness on this like single like lane road that goes like this and this and this and this constantly at a slow speed, stuck behind this dude that just was not going fast. Um, and then I don't know where I'm going. But about 30 minutes from Los Angeles, I get a message from Satine saying, all right, this is where I am. I go and I pick her, I go and I stand outside the house and she comes out with her bags, puts it in the back of my truck. <laughs> okay, where are we going? We're going to my friend Panda. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> what? <laughs> the fuck is Panda? <laughs> I'm like, uh, I figured I had a place to sleep or something. And we yeah. just, I hung outside that place for half an hour because she was with some photographer dude who lived with an indi indigenous tribe for seven years of his life. Like, he, he had a lot going on. Um, but he just didn't want to let go of her. So mm. it's just, they sort of stayed for an extra half hour and I just sat there waiting. And then we went to go see Panda, and we pulled up driving through the Hollywood Hills. It's just, you know, the Hollywood Hills, it's these narrow little streets with mm. massive mansions everywhere. And then we parked my big truck that I'm renting, this Tacoma, <laughs> which is like the Patagonia of cars. You know, it's a real, it's the car that you get. <laughs> um, and we pull up, and there's this, like, parking spot. But you get in, and the house has all sorts of vibey accent lights, a big pool with a bunch of rings hanging over it and around it. And we were greeted by this little elf-like German guy called Adrian. Mm. He had a high-pitched voice and small frame, and but looked at you with like intense eyes, mm. but also kind of like, like he's always on drugs type of eyes. 
And then he starts, like, he's just cooking and cooking and cooking. And sitting in, uh, at his little round table that has space for four people in his kitchen, well, is a dude who's got kind of semi-dark skin. He kind of looks like half black, curly hair, wears a bandana in, like, a pattern like my rug. And it, like, kind of drapes him there. He's got a shirt that's all patterns. And you almost looks like set of wheel pants. It looks like yoga pants. And he Sounds like a trippy dude. And he moves like this. <laughs> and he's got this little bong that he's... <laughs> Constantly just hidden. <laughs> Trippy dude. Trippy dude. Um, I had not noticed at that point that this house had a big leather X with shackles on all four corners. Oh, so kinky and trippy. Uh, a stripper yeah. pole. Uh, big sound <laughs> Good system. Mix. Neon in neon letters, vibes written. A DJ booth. Um, bl- white leather couches that, you know, and bunch of paintings and a, one of those gymnastic things that you can do tricks around, like over, like a horse, they call them, mm. but with a paddle that says slut. Okay. Um, I began to realize <laughs> that the nature of this house was not what I had initially expected <laughs> no. of the place I would be sleeping that night. And so um, then I began to sit down at the table and these guys are having a conversation. And my first whole thought was like, this is... Where the hell am I? <laughs> Who is this dude? Why is he called Panda? And, but what I noticed is that through this really Los Angeles words that was being used that I generally automatically dismiss, this dude, when he was speaking, I didn't disagree with him. I was like, you know? <laughs> so he was sound, basically. Like, <laughs> I just didn't disagree I guess, with the yeah, guy. Right. I was still like, Who the fuck is this guy? But I just didn't disagree. He made points. I'm like, yeah, man, this dude. And, but he says it kind of like, he holds his hands out just. Kind of, kind of like this, and uh, when 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 you feel the heart, it's it's kind of in a place, and that's how he puts around these Los Angeles people. Like he doesn't act like that around us. LA is a very distinct <laughs> vibe and culture. Oh my god, it's its own world. It's its oh own world. Oh my god, and, uh, yeah. and I'm thinking this dude is Los Angeles. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's all I'm projecting on this guy. I mean, <laughs> something that over the next six weeks he was really trying to shake off him. He's like, no, I'm I'm not Los Angeles. You know, Orange <laughs> County. But that's what I'm, I'm from. OC. As if that's <laughs> but it just does. It, he sees it as an offense. Like, and I, yeah. I can recognize that it's kind of like I'm a man. You know, you don't you don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to call that money. Do you want to? Exactly. So it's not crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but that's. But I just was connecting. Well, I don't know what his connection is to this BDSM house. He seems kind of broy with Adrian. <laughs> like they're kind of they know each other. Like yeah, Adrian's my boy. Like, okay. Well, in what context? Like, what, <laughs> what do you do together? And I'm open to all of it, but I just want to know because I'm I'm Jordanian. Just curious. I'm very curious about where on earth I am right now. <laughs> it comes nothing. From what is this X? Someone tell me. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is not. This does not come from a place of prejudice. <laughs> it comes from a place of pure innocent <laughs> curiosity. I want to know what this place is. <laughs> Where am, Where am I? Why is there a trampoline <laughs> on the roof? <laughs> There's a trampoline on the roof. <laughs> that sounds very dangerous, but very fun. There was also a fence. Did they ever jump off the trampoline into the pool? Didn't go that way. Oh, my oh. God. You'd have, there's a lot of roof in between. That would be a lot of fun, no? <laughs> no. <laughs> dangerous, but yes. fun. But just under the trampoline, there's this like alley that goes around the house. And in one particular corner, it's like a garden door. You know, It's mm. just a door that separates two parts of the garden. And like... You know, you look at the door, it's all wood, and you like your eye travels down the door, and then at some point there's like a it's not a hole, it's a it's long and rounded, looks like a pill. <laughs> I, I mean I thought it's a different shape, it might be a different thing, you know what I mean? But then I like I stood there and I recognized that there was like a variant height concept that might somebody might have thought about. Mm. Recognizing that not not all legs and knees are of equal length. 
And it's so pretty brilliant con contraption. Rather than a big open circle, it was just a, a pill shaped like an elevator that you could sort of that adjusted to your height. And so I learned that that was a his like glory pill or glory hole. <laughs> glory pill. <laughs> um, so what he was cleaning up glory the place pill. like crazy because um, <laughs> he was it wasn't just a house. Mm. Tomorrow night was his yearly Halloween party. Mm. Ooh. And so Adrian was cleaning the place up and like it was kind of in squalor a little bit, you yeah. know, but he was really cleaning it up. But we're, and I'm sitting with Satin who, what I like about Satin is that not, although her English is not her first language, it doesn't matter because mm -hmm. everything she says is like, she gets it. Mm -hmm. Very smart. She's, mm. her name is Natalia. Mm. She was given the name Satin by some shaman. She's the type of woman. So LA, everything about no, But she's not so LA. LA. She's, fr she's from, I met her in Sweden. <laughs> sure. and, but she's the type of woman who, I met her in a festival in Sweden. She just went to the States to Burning Man on invitation. And they spent the next eight weeks just following people's invitations. Just going wherever the wind pulled just her. Go with just go the vibe, yeah. She kept going from festival to festival to festival to festival. She'd invited me to this festival called Totality. And Totality was in San Diego. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to have time. I'm not going to have time. Well, Totality is where she met Panda. And they just had a vibe there. And that night I met that guy over there. And I would not have met him at all if I hadn't had those two things ring. My mother said, you should see Big Sur. And Satine saying, like, are you coming? Mm. <laughs> so like, it, it had come out of nowhere, out of three weeks. Like, where are you? You, came, you said you came to California. I didn't, like, I was w not within reach. I was at the anarchist commune. We <laughs> parked uh, where, there was a little fence between where we parked our truck and a whole bunch of Scottish Highlander cows. Mm. And I have great photos of Willie as he's sort of like, forming a cow circle he's on, and all the cows are looking at him and he's got a robe a poncho on and his arms are wide mm. so the whole point of this story <laughs> was to say that a bunch of arbitrary circumstances took me down to that house in San Diego where my intention was to stay for two days and fly out yeah. but then United Airlines fly, fly the friendly skies unitedairlines.com said um, there are no more change fees and they and Every three like, days, there was a flight that I could change to that didn't cost anything, literally zero dollars. Mm. It was like $30 this day. No, I don't mm. want to pay $30. I want to pay zero dollars. So I'd only choose the day that had zero dollars. <laughs> but it was just unlimited. Just unlimited. And so every time the day came close, and I figured, it's been two days. You know what? Let me stay another two days. Mm. Uh, two, two days later, let me stay another two days. And I said, okay, you know, why am I? Lishtman, you know, <laughs> I'm going like, I'm, I'm to stay a week. And I mm. stayed a week. And before you knew it, I stay. I extended my flight like nine times. Mm -hmm. I was gonna stay for two days. I stayed for like six weeks because mm -hmm. the vibe was just right yeah. every single day. Mm. I went to Joshua Tree again to a trip with Willie. Great experience. But we were supposed to see Satine, who was gonna join us, but she didn't write us the message that morning. We'd already driven that night before. We slept in the car by like truck stop because <laughs> we we drove into the boonies and felt it was kind of too dark and a little bit like mm, I'm a well, let's uh, let's go a little closer to where the lights are. Felt really Arab in that moment. Mm. Um, no message from them. We, we go into the Joshua Tree, then we realize, oh, shit, there's no signal here. Uh, we need to let them know where we're going. Okay, figure out where we're going to go. Drive all the way out, 30 minutes out. Send a message. Hope they'll receive it. Go back in. And at that point, we've said we're going to meet at 11. It's 12.30. Like, it's mm. okay. We parked the car. I said, go to this viewpoint, which you'll just follow the signs, and then keep driving. And at some point, you'll see this car on the right side of the road. That was what I gave them, everything. Mm. I took a picture of the car. And... Willie and I just go, and we have this whole trip, and we're just climbing through the mountains like it's play. It's, if you've ever been to that desert, 
Those rocks, you can climb them so casually. Which desert? Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree. Like, the rocks are so accessible mm -hmm. at, at such a low level that you can hop around, frolic on the rocks, mm -hmm. and make great altitude. You know, of course, they'll get some bumps and scrapes, but we had a great, really fun experience, the two of us just tripping there. And at some point, we were just climbing over to go back to our car. <laughs> yeah, we just outside our car, we found these big logs, and we formed an arrow mm -hmm. that pointed in the general direction <laughs> that we went. <laughs> and then we were just this pass. And we climbed up again. And then from a real distance, we see a car pull up mm. behind our car. Like, it was so far away that we just, I said, just, I joked to Willie. I said, can you imagine that that's them? It's at 6 p.m. at this point. There's no way they're coming. Like, us, they're done. like we're done. We're going to go home tonight. You know, that mm. was the plan. There's no reason for them to come. We start waving, and then the people in there are like, ooh, ooh, ooh waving back. We're like, look, they're waving at us. Uh, we moved closer and closer and closer, and then there's this, like, they're covered in ponchos. But this is the night where I told you where Ozzy took that massive, massive, massive branch, and we had walk, fire walk, for the whole walk. night. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I mean, some of my best life experiences have been ones that were absolutely unplanned and just happened. Like, even my relationship to Tunis, I only ended up there because I had a gap in my travels for a week, and I didn't know what to do with myself. And my friend was like, why don't you just come with me to Tunis? Because she'd been there because of an ex-boyfriend and this and that. And then I ended up in that space. And I ended up staying for two months. Wow. <laughs> my entire trip, the, the, the focal point of my entire trip was spending my birthday in Morocco. The two things, Jumana. I did not spend my birthday in Morocco. Amazing. <laughs> Tunis stole my heart and I ended up staying there. And it changed so much of my worldview and so much of my connections and stuff like that. And it's funny how life works that way, you know? A lot of people say, like, if, uh, what is it? Tell God your plans and he'll laugh at you. And I find that one like a little bit on the nose, but like not on the nose. It's, there is something comical about the fact that like if you just create enough structure in your life where you have these pinion points of like, I have to do this at some point in time in this direction. And then how I get there, that's up to, that's up to life. It creates space for magic and structure in one place. And that's the thing I've always found interesting because like the global north, the culture is all about like, you create order in chaos. We have our plans, we have our meetings, we have our deadlines, we have our things, we structure our lives. And that's how they get so much shit done. <laughs> you know what I mean? And same with like in Chinese culture, these like highly structured spaces. But then the, I think the question comes in, and you were saying this earlier today, I think it was, or yesterday, like the difference between, you know, sitting in the magic and the mystery of how something is to get done versus those people that just like, just do it. They just get through it and they just create a product and then there it is in your hands. I think there's great value in both of them. One inspires the poetry and the stuff through which is why we create. And then other is the structure which allows that creation to become something that is palatable and can be shared with other people. You refer to it as structure. Yeah. I refer to it as chaos. Really? You know, in, in Interesting. I, I always call it start where it's most alive. I don't like sitting down for three weeks and just really patiently focus on making something. I just figure yeah. if I just make something now that takes me almost no effort to make, at least in terms of how much time, and I can just poof, blast it out into something and <laughs> act before I can really think, bef the consequences of that action might produce a situation where I have to produce poetry in response to what it is that happens sure. happening. Yeah. Now this person wants me to go see them for whatever reason, and God knows what happens. Mm. Like you just play with the potentialities and just like throw it out. Mm. I, I don't know. It's a kind of way with dancing with your opportunities. Yeah, I love it. It's a beautiful way of doing things. It's a beautiful way of doing things. And 
I think there's a lot of magic. I think that's also why you have a little bit of like this conductor kick to your character <laughs> and your personality and your magic, right? Because like you create this and you have this ability to respond to impulse. It sounds like you have this ability that like when a thought comes, it's an impulse and you can run with the impulse, right? Um, and then the more you create like these cocktails of human beings around you, you have like the person who puts things in action and impulses, the person who moves in them, the person who listens, the person who whatever. That's why I think creative collaboration is one of the greatest forms of creation or creating anything. Like once you get a bunch of people in a space that all have different kinds of magic and different kinds of skills and different kinds of ways of beauty of creating things and then you just put them all together and they just create something, the product itself ends up becoming like a, a touch of all of those different kinds of magics. It has a little bit of everything. It has the reflection, it has the depth, it has the impulse, the creation, it has the observation, everything, yeah. The construction of a whole team. Yeah. Uh, that just speak to each other at all times. Hive mind. Hive mind. Yeah. Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the name. <laughs> no, well, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. And I wouldn't pretend to, I would come up with a name. I would not need to use my own. I think that'd be, um, I think it's, there are, I've had many thoughts uh, about your involvement in our podcast today. Yeah. Um, Happy to be here. Hello. Well, it's <laughs> it's Hello, definitely, so. like, it's so cool to have such a fresh, um, input source mm -hmm. <laughs> of, yeah. of ideas and response. Uh, there are many times where you speak where uh, in my head I'm just saying like, yeah, that makes sense. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Uh -huh. And it's just like uh, this continuing sequence of what makes sense. There's like logical order. You know, some people can have a capacity to woo-woo into their words, but you don't have that. Yeah. And there's a, really you don't. And that, mm -hmm. that's something we, we greatly enjoy, <laughs> substantive speaking. Um, Mm. It brings totally different space of energy to what we mm. can talk about. Mm -hmm. That's been very good. Yeah. And it's also pretty cool to feel seen in that way. It, it, I wonder if a lot of the thoughts you're having mm. that you're expressing are, how could I even say this, Synthesize, synthesized by yourself or by your own synthesis or that you mm. feel like this is just the current of thought that you feel like is going around if you're really listening to it. It's a little bit of both. Like, you know how we're talking about all of these different like branches of possibilities and this idea of like all of these different potentialities that exist in the world. One of my favorite things to do and one of my favorite qualities about this particular life path that I'm walking is that I end up crossing paths with people that are so intensely different from each other and so intensely engrossed in all of these different pathways of consideration and thought and so on and so forth. And then my own mind works at a million miles per hour and rabbit holes a lot. So I end up finding myself in spaces where I'm having like in one day six different conversations that go really deep into a different stream of thought that is both like just kind of like existing in the room and in the ether and the connection but like hits on something that I'm thinking about as well like there's this specific kind of magic when you start engaging with this process of exploration within yourself where all of a sudden just like clockwork you'll meet people that like bring that up and then add something into it and then mix it like a fucking little cauldron or something of the sort so for myself personally it's a mixture of the two it's like what's alive in me and then what's alive in here and then how do those things dance with each other it's yeah. like what your dad says Right? Wherever you go, you'll find what you're looking for. Everywhere you go, you'll find what you're looking for. Yeah, definitely. And I take his word for it, because he's been in a lot of places. <laughs> like, a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you could, you could probably have that insight in any place, right? Mm -hmm. if, mm -hmm. if you really could listen yeah. to it. Yeah. it. It just sort of says that if, if you expect it all to be shit, it's going to be shit. You know, <laughs> you'll find exactly that you'll thing. You'll find the shitty things everywhere you and go. And it'll be shitty. And so yeah. you, <laughs> people who think life is shitty have <laughs> shitty, like, experience life in a shitty way. Yeah. Right? And they have all this like confirmation bias of like I've seen so much shitty in this world, so my belief is true. I wonder. Yeah. You know, but when I hear you describing me, there's definitely a version of feeling seen 
but yeah. that also allows me to to see that thing that I see from the inside that he's been missing mm. to the symphony of that character and that that mm. that energy that mm. wishes to sort of orchestrate. Mm -hmm. It's it's this constant feeling of and it's just the undercurrent of imposition yeah. that exists within me mm. that doesn't feel fully welcome. Mm. Um, no, no matter what, we'll take mm -hmm. the space anyway, mm -hmm. but still doesn't feel fully welcome. And as a result, mm -hmm. it's like I haven't really learned how to effectively hold space more because mm -hmm. I, f I do know that I, I, I demonstrate to some extent this current of like mm -hmm. uh, of anxiety that, mm -hmm. that that must be able to be felt mm -hmm. um, beyond what I feel like is being expressed. Definitely, yeah. And so the question then is like, you can start. How do you get to a I, I always thought, well, you know, there's an answer. One of the answers is just put a bunch of great people around you. This has been the deficit over the last couple of years. I've been mm. traveling solo with my partner, with no friends, no yeah. social life, nothing stable. And then surprised that things begin to feel a little bit ungrounded, mm -hmm. as though I, it, the problem is in me. It's like, no, it's environmental, you know? Mm -hmm. like, how can I somehow orchestrate a situation where just in a country where people feel like there are great people, but they're hard to find and hard to put in a room together often. Mm. And... Why not just try it anyway and do it? I, I stayed long enough. And mm -hmm. the reason I stayed long enough there was by the seventh week I stayed in San Diego, I was like, yo, dude, you guys have to come to... Actually, I kept saying it. Mm -hmm. I kept saying it. I kept saying it. What was funny is that one dude there who was like, who's lived his life fully rigidly, yeah. Ziv. Mm -hmm. Ziv decided he wanted to come. Mm -hmm. And su suddenly, Willie, who'd been arguing the whole time that he couldn't come, because he has his cricket business. I haven't told you about this, have I? No. Maybe I have. I did. I There's think so many offshoot I stories we, about I these boys. I think we showed you the, po <laughs> the poster of the seductive cricket. I feel like we showed you. If not, no, we have something no. good to show I you. I would like to see it, though. A seductive cricket sounds good. Willie makes <laughs> cricket-based chocolate bars. Okay. And cool. it, when we were at the Anarchy Halloween party, I helped him come up with a way of presenting it that would be more emotionally... Uh, intensive an experience than okay. what he was presenting to people sure. so that he could sell more cricket-based chocolate. Mm. Uh, so that was the business that he was going to stay for. He didn't want to leave the States. But, okay, it was Ziv's coming. And then Panda said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to Taiwan. Mm. Like, on the way back, I could just come to Jordan. You should come to Jordan. And now Willie, who would have normally been the first, jumped on board. And then Ziv dropped out, which I think was ultimately for the best. Mm. I like Ziv. I think he's a great guy, but I also think there's a certain complexity that I would be welcoming into the equation because Ziv mm. is a man who was born at the neighbor's side mm. and is of that culture. Mm -hmm. And as much as I thought that there would be something interesting healing there, I also thought there would be a lot of headache. Oh and, yeah. and I just felt like that it's headache loaded. is something I had yeah. to be mindful of. Yeah. <sighs> but Ziv, if you're listening, we have a lot of great adventures to go to, like the bullet out ones <laughs> and uh, whatever other tribal things we can come up with. It's just not the ones in Jordan. That's all I'm saying. You know, we believe in the Ziv energy. We've achieved the good things together. Mm. We really have. Yeah. Like, he knows what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. like you are welcome anytime. Like our catch-up project. <laughs> oh. Which you haven't seen. And you haven't seen. I can't believe I haven't showed either of you a catch-up project. There's a story night in order at some point. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. Very cool to see this sort of energy join us in this space. Mm. And I feel like there's, um, I have so many questions for you. Sure. Uh, but just they're like broad questions, which don't happen in this moment now. It's more this like acknowledgement that pff, there's this huge volume of like information that, 
and mm. insight and emotion and feeling about it all that like you, when you told us you had this whole encyclopedia set of all this mythology of just what life was like mm. normally mm. definitely both both of us were thinking wow this that's there's some great information like that would mm. be so interesting mm -hmm. and i'm sure there's a bunch of stuff in those books that are resting either in your conscious or subconscious memory that yeah if brought to the fore we'd be like wow that's oh man awesome. like honestly when i was thinking about the idea of spending thousands of dollars shipping books across the planet there was a part of me which is the khalili part of me that was like that is way too much fucking money <laughs> and like hell no and there's got to be a way like maybe i can find like a troop of palestinians or jordanians that are all traveling at the same time and give them a book each anyways um <laughs> but <laughs> But the more that I sit with it, the more that, like, I think that you can tell so much about the content of a human being's mind by the books that they keep in their spaces. And it's been so interesting um, kind of traveling the world and letting go of this huge component of, like, the reading process. And I also find it so interesting because we're starting to enter into a period of time where people don't read anymore. Like, when I tell friends that, like, I'm sitting down and I'm reading a book this evening and this is my activity, they're like, excuse me, <laughs> you're doing what? Mm. You know, like, it's just, it's falling off of the deep end so much. But I really want to circle back to something you were talking about. Uh, I felt like it dropped in as this, like, really juicy nugget and then we ran away from it right afterwards. You were talking about this process of feeling seen and then, like, recognizing the tension between... Um, the wound and the magic, the, the wound and the medicine. So like you've got this natural proclivity towards the processes of leadership and orchestration. And then every time you go into that, you also come up against this like Gordian knot, so to speak, of a sensation of like, what does it feel like to be seen yet also consistently feel alone and unseen in the same moment and the behaviors that drive out of that. And I was thinking about, I think about this all the time about the, the intensity of what it means to meet someone who's in a place of mastery of their art and their craft in the processes of evolution. Like the best leaders I have ever met in my entire lives are the leaders that have gone really deeply into why they feel called to lead and garner power. And oftentimes at the core of that desire to garner power or to provide direction is this Gordian knot of good intentions and pain. It's good intentions and hunger good intentions and so on and so forth. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently, about how much of what scares us and hurts us and that we keep in the shadows of why we do the things that we do holds the very keys to doing them in a way that is absolutely masterful or like doing them in a way that is so unique to the way that we could do it that it can absolutely change lives. Do you know what I mean? I know like, exactly what you mean. Like when you look at the artists that create really good work, but you feel like they're just not touching something that's like deep in there. Mm -hmm. And then they go through this process of like really uncovering this thing that they're terrified about within themselves that has nothing to do with the world or the leadership that they imagine in the world. And it just changes the flavor and the nature of the work that you're engaging with when it's produced out of them. It has this vulnerability about it. And earlier when we were talking about the concept of like living in fear or not living in fear, the thought that came to my mind is like, I don't think it's possible to live without fear. I think what really creates the mark of a courageous person is the way that they respond to the fear when it arises, the way that they befriend the fear and create intimacy with the fear, that when it shows up, it's not a forceful, like, no, I don't want to look at you. You're not here. Leave me alone. But it's rather a like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, you're here. Cool. Well, we're going to keep going. But what is it about what you are afraid of that can inform the way that I move forward into this decision? How can it enrich my approach to the way that I approach things? You know, mm. And those are the kinds of pieces of wisdom that I think are so often missing from the dialogue because they're not derived from intellectual understanding or contemplation on a subject. They're derived from experience in doing the thing. Like you can, and that's 
oftentimes how I discern different people that I interact with and the information and the knowledge they're giving me is this knowledge that they inherited, that they learned, that they absorbed, and then they share it out into the world and they regurgitate, or is this knowledge that comes from hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of practice in a thing, where they're not telling you about the phenomenon, but they're telling you about the practice. They're saying like, yeah, when you get to this point, try doing this. And that's something you could never know unless you'd been doing it for a thousand. You'll and never you read that, that in step. a book because yeah. it's not relevant to the book. It's not relevant to the transference of an idea. It's relevant to the embodiment of a practice. And few actually embody the practices that they talk about, you know? Yeah. Like you could invite people to recognize this moment inside yeah. their psyche that mm. they experience an about face, you know, where they yeah. turn away from something. Yeah. And it's a moment that you can experience in so many different contexts. Sure. Like this idea of, I, I wish to look away from whatever yeah. impulse it is that I'm experiencing. Yeah. To just listen to that look away to begin with, just mm -hmm. to recognize when it is that's happening. Mm -hmm. From that point on, you'll naturally begin to start thinking about how you might be able to look toward that thing you're looking away from. Yeah. Yeah. I call it um, <laughs> inviting my demons for a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. this concept of like, and, and for a little period of time, like I actually had a little bit of a ritual around this because like I was dealing with a lot of like really deep shadow stuff after one of the biggest relationships of my life came to end. Um, where like I would actually make a date with like the demons, mm. so to speak, in my mind or in my consciousness, the things that terrified me to really look at or to really sit with and like not look at, like I knew what they were intellectually. I could give you a whole like really sophisticatedly articulated psychological analysis of what was happening. Um, but my ability to actually like recognize, sit with and be with that side of the impulse or the desire or the wound that drives this behavior was very limited. So I used to have like a little coffee date in the mornings where I'm like in this distinct period of time, <laughs> I will be sitting with these things like very intentionally. And then over time, it turns into something that happens from moment to moment. Like how do you cultivate the ability to invite the demons out of the underworld and to sit with them? And I think it also really changes the way that you interact and relate to other people as well. Because the process of that running that we do collectively with each other, which is like the baseline agreement of a lot of our relationships, it starts to kind of falter because you're not running anymore. And your presence invites things out of people and then they might get very uncomfortable with it. You know, um, that's why I find the underworld creatures of mythology to be fascinating. Mm. And I think it's f really, really interesting that in monotheistic religions like Christianity and Islam and Judaism and so on and so forth, when you go into like the actual language, the original language of these scriptures and the original understanding of these scriptures, not the million and one understandings, interpretations of people who don't speak true classical Quranic Arabic, for example, you'll often find that the underworld masters, like Satan, for example, and demons, for example, and so on and so forth, um, they are not at all what we perceive them or understand them to be in the world that we live in now. This like really intense binary conflict between God and evil. Um, God in these ideas or in these ideals is everything that has ever existed therefore also contains the energy of the evil. The evil comes with a purpose, with a function within the universe. It creates a tension and a, cre and a growth and so on and so forth. Um, and in Greek mythology, when they talk about things like Persephone and Hades and these underworld creatures, they're also often associated to the idea of fertility. They're often, although they're associated to death in the underworld, they're also the sources of fertility, the sources of creation itself. And when you take it out of this like crazy mythological realm and you ground it into like an actual personal experience, a, a, a 
something that is connected to real life, you know, like the experience of being a human being with a mind, with shadows and with lights and with all of these different sorts of things. It's this concept that the more that we allow ourselves to descend into this like really dark, danky, twisty space that exists within us where we kind of like banish all of these things that feel unattractive about us. But yet, just like we were talking about with desire smuggling and emotional smuggling, these things have their own force. They're going to find a way out. They're going to whether you like it or not, whether you see it or not, right? Yeah. So, for example, it's that person in the room that, like, everybody can see something that's happening and coming out of them, but they don't see it at all. <laughs> ever, ever. Right? Like, like, and, like, you could say it to them, they're like, I don't do that. Yeah. You're like, but you, but you do. <laughs> like, it definitely happens. Um, so I think that there is, the, the nature of creation and fertility has a lot to do with what we banish out of the mind, the taboo. And it's not nearly as like scary as it sounds when you're like dealing with it. The more that you bring it out of the shadow, the less powerful and scary it is. It just becomes human. Like when you see it in another person, it's not scary. You're just like, ah, oh, yeah, you've got this thing going on. But inside of you, it's like this terrifying monster that you're like, no, you know? Um, I think there's a lot of power in that. And a lot of the art that moves us the most is the art that communicates that. The battle between enveloping yeah. the emotion that yeah. it comes from, and monotheism has created a very interesting, fantastical story about the battle between these things. Um, You're right; how they two truly can't exist together. You know, comedy that's just funny is not funny. No, right? You need everything needs its yeah. counterpoint to feel yeah. its contextual weight. That's why everyone loves dark humor so much. Oh, like yeah. the inappropriate shit makes you laugh at this belly level that a wholesome joke will never make you laugh at. Impossible. Because it, it does. It teases out the shit that we want to talk about, but yeah. we don't feel safe to. And that's the function of humor. Humor is supposed to be this very like light, playful way to bring up the shit that isn't allowed out in serious context, right? Because if we can laugh at it, it's not scary. I agree. Until you stop laughing and you're like, oh shit, that was really dark. <laughs> How many of us have had that experience? We're like, maybe I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it's hilarious. That's the whole, that is the only yeah. literal reaction you're supposed to have at dark yeah. humor. Yeah. If you're laughing at dark humor and not asking yourself, should I be laughing at this? Then there's something that we should check up. On yeah, then you. we have some concerns. Like you've gone deep into the dark underworld uh, space. That's, then that's not <laughs> We dark need to humor. bring you back up. You know? That's just humor for you. you know? Yeah, you're like, ha. Hilarious. <laughs> I mean, we, look, we have a friend whose little brother is called Michael or Mikhail. And like this friend is a is a PhD chemist. Of sure. I don't know if he's got a PhD, but the point is he's, yeah. he's a biochemist. Uh -huh. He's a very smart guy. He's also yeah. a bit of a hustler in a great yeah. way. He's a Romanian. And uh, Stefan. And he's got a brother, Michael. Michael is, he came as a migrant worker. You know, Stefan's got like an IQ of 140, whatever mm. that means of... Michael's got an IQ by the same test of 70. Mm. Very different people. And, but what Michael comes from middle of nowhere Romania, mm -hmm. and he's basically uneducated. And when he, when he laughs at things, it, when, what's dark for us, it's like there's, there was a lot of different people in this house. There's a black guy, a Sri Lankan person, a Czech person. There's a lot of like racial mm -hmm. joking. That it's mm -hmm. very just friendly. Mm -hmm. But for him, when he started doing it, he was so, he was completely real about it. Completely real from his small world. <laughs> I can't even repeat the things he's saying. I'm trying to figure out how to tell this story. But Simon, this really, Shimon, this Czech guy who's, I can't even like begin to describe Simon, but Shimon rolled, fell onto the ground on his back laughing <laughs> from the intense intensity of the humor of hearing this guy, Michael, who's got red hair and piercing blue eyes. Mm. Just 
take this what we call dark humor and him being totally serious about it. Mm -hmm. Serious in the sense that he th just thought this was funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to have Stefan on this podcast and I want him to tell Michael stories. I can't even begin to, to begin <laughs> to like, outsource outsource this one. Outsource yeah. the stories. <laughs> the, the, the Michael stories are. I, I just can't even begin to... I can't even describe them. There's yeah. no way. They're, they're so obscene. Mm -hmm. They're so absolutely obscene and like otherworldly. You've never heard of a guy like Michael. Mm. <laughs> Big Michael. <laughs> Most of our energy has a lot of male energy in these podcasts, although we have our own feminine side. Mm. There's still like... There's definitely a big missing, missing yeah. point. Yeah. And the, you're actually... No, you're not. Sorry. I was going to say you're the first... first one with the opposite chromosomes to uh, be on our podcast, but it's not true. Who was the first? Sarah Dancer. The woman Sarah who knit Dancer. our green beanies. Oh, very nice. Yes. Okay, yes. very cool. Her name is, well, I want to say her name because it's a great name, but I want if I pronounced her name fully now, it would be her full passport name. <laughs> We'd have to clap again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a name that would be typically given to a stripper. Mm. I'll tell you the name after the fact. You, you will agree with I me. I have a list in my mind of stripper names. I've thought no, of no, this is the stripper <laughs> name. It is the, the? It, it is the stripper name. Okay. It's I want to see if I'm accurately guessing. Afterwards. No, no. You know what? I have an idea. <laughs> You're going to write it down. I'm going to write it down. <laughs> we don't talk about the government. Just a reminder, everybody. Um, this is our daily announcement of do not talk about the government. <laughs> You can, you can join us on our newsletter and do not talk about the government dot com. It's a great movement. Here, uh, where what a, we do is talk about the government. <laughs> but we don't. Yep. Yeah, that is definitely a stripper name. Uh, I think it's the, <laughs> it's the stripper name, <laughs> especially with that middle name. I've also felt like Sapphire. Yeah, Sapphire is a strong one. You know, Sapphire. Any gem, any gem, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it be any gem like diamond? Jade. Jade. Ruby. I know a lot of jade trippers. Ruby. Def yeah. I can see a ruby for sure. Yeah. Diamond, yeah. yeah. But what else? What are other... Amethyst? No, I wouldn't call somebody Amethyst. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in BC, in the Pacific Northwest, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Oh, yeah. Salt Springs type of situation. Definitely, yeah. But that's, those, are not, those, those aren't strippers. Actually, one of the few studios that taught pole dancing and floor work and like stripper work, basically, um, in Victoria is called Amethyst Studios. But that's the name of the studio. I would call it Amethyst Studios, but I wouldn't call I wouldn't call it the human Amethyst for some reason. You know, I'll call them Sapphire, but I won't say Amethyst. It's just the way the phonetics are. Adamantine. It's kind of hard to try it bad and have it be sexy. Yeah. Look, can you just look up some precious stones and like, if you had a kid, call your first kid like Adam, which is short for Adamantine. <laughs> this is my boy, Adamantine. <laughs> Such a little next day. You call him Adam. <laughs> 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 He's, uh, every, oh. Nobody realized that Adam is short. Hi, Adam. But then you think of Johnny Cash's song, The Boy Named Sue. Okay. Do you know this song? No. You should listen to the song. I will. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, viewers, uh, pause the podcast. <laughs> listen to the song, The Boy Named Sue. And now... Come back. <laughs> Play. I'm going to presume you just listened to the song. Okay, so now that you had that context, <laughs> you don't have it, but the viewers do. There you go. <laughs> I'll get there. I'll get there. Um, it's about how giving... No, you know what? I'm not going to reveal anything. It's okay. not, you have to hear it. It's a story. Why would I ruin Johnny Cash's story? It's a story worth listening to. Mm. Um, 
Adamantine. What are other precious stones? There's so many. Um, moonstone. Moonstone. I could definitely see that being a life coach. Definitely. I'm yeah. like Moonstone Williams. <laughs> uh, let's think of other ones. There's Kyanite, but I don't feel like Kyanite would work anywhere. Kyanite sounds more like a warrior's name. Ti no, not titanium. No? Gran yeah. Granite. No, titanium is a metal. See, in the I but I researched titanium because I got a lot of titanium in my body and I was so fucking curious about it. Titanium is fascinating. Do you know much about Tell it? Tell me more. Like you, you have a lot more of a relationship to titanium. I think we should give you the floor. I've got a lot of titanium <laughs> in my body. <laughs> a lot of it. It's literally screwing my head on. Mm. Yeah. I, and I tell people that things. sometimes that my head is screwed on, right? And they think I'm being funny. I'm like, no, I'm not no, being no, funny. No, no, it's there. It's <laughs> I'm being there. serious. Yeah. Um, titanium is actually the result of two um, meteors that crashed into the world at different time, melted together, so it's star stuff. And it's the strongest and lightest that you can put into a body, and it's not detectable. It's phenomenal. It doesn't degrade at all. It barely changes temperature. This is why they use it for so many surgeries. Because, like, for example, if I had a different metal in my body that was also light and strong, but more temperature um, absorbent than titanium, my life would be a living hell. Cold outside would be like literal cold metal inside of the bones of my spine. That's like makes getting sense. cold would not happen unless I put myself up against a heat source that could heat the metal in my body. And then let's say I'm in a sauna, or let's say I'm in a very hot location, and then I have hot It'll metal like inside of my muscles and inside of my bones. So that quality of titanium, the fact that it does not retain nor expel heat well with its environment is like a massive component of its usability in the world around us. Otherwise, there's other metals that would be better in terms of like tactile strength and flexibility to put into a body, but the person's life would be a living hell. Yeah. Kind of a miracle kind of element. Yeah, and it's star stuff, man. It literally came from two like little pieces that broke off in the universe that crashed into our planet at some point in time that they just decided to melt in together and see how it works. It came from the sky. Yeah. So your kids are going to be I'm called... I'm a sky child. <laughs> your child would be called Titanium. Huh? Titanium's kind of a badass name for... Could, well, it could be a Actually, one of my ex-boyfriend's name was Titan. Mm. Titan's one thing, but Titanium. Every time I told anybody about this ex boyfriend, they're like, wow. Titan? <laughs> How tall was he? He was tall. He was six foot three. Did they name him as a baby? Yes. Did the parents suggest that he would be large? <laughs> I don't know. Like I think his mom imagined him to have the personality of a Titan. Do you feel like mm -hmm. by offering a they child that name? It was after the moon of Jupiter, I think it is. Because Jupiter has the Titan mm -hmm. moons, right? Yeah. Um, not after the mythological creatures of the Titans. Yeah, although I find the Titan story very fucking interesting. What you name On the topic after. of what we shove into the <laughs> underworld. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like, when you name someone Titan, no one's thinking what the intention was that mom had. You just think of what a Titan is. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, Nobody thinks of a moon. They think no. of the Titans. They think of the Titans. Yeah. Um, what I'm wondering, out of 100 people, 100 babies, mm. 100 babies that you call Titan, how many of them begin to develop Titanic qualities? I've always wondered about that, about how when you name a child... And like this is also something I've thought about with astrology and with anything else that has like a, a mythological character to it. How much that influences the way that someone sees themselves and develops themselves. Like people who really deeply invest into astrology, right? This idea of like, I am a Sagittarius, let's say. How much is that belief system of what you are predestined to be or what this like divine thing that was placed onto you, like a name, for example, well, how does that shape the way that you become as a person? Well, like we said earlier, if yeah. you think everything is shitty, you will be shitty. You will be shitty. <laughs> <laughs> if 
if you if you think everything is like plugging into your Sagittariusness, you'll be a Sagittarius. Yeah. That's just it. You'll embody that mythological archetype 100%. like it's nobody's business. Yeah. Exactly. It can yeah. go far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My name is I'm named after a, a mosque on a, between the sixth and seventh circle called Masjid Suhaib ibn Sinan. Mm. And Suhaib ibn Sinan was a companion of the Prophet, an early one. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I've definitely looked the story up because it's my name. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was specifically named by this whole thing. Yeah. And so, turns out that he was called Suhaib Rumi as well. Mm. So he's Roman. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And he came from he came from you know the Roman Empire and then yeah. went into. Uh, to Arabia mm. um, during that time and then became Muslim and w- this was in Mecca and this is before the pilgrimage of, of Muhammad to Medina which is another city where he was going to create his whole mm. uh, Muslim community turns out Suhaib as, they were, as ev- people were leaving mm. there would be other people from Mecca who would try to take their money you know tell them like we won't we'll, we'll kill you you know before you get to Medina unless you tell us where your treasures are mm. And so, for that was the story that he got to kind of midway, and they stopped him and they said, "Go take it. It's right. It, like I'll tell you exactly where my money is," and then kind of just like like let everything go. So mm. it's either this 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 sense of um, one that he's not from here, mm-hmm. and two that he was doesn't really attach himself to mm-hmm. to money. Mm-hmm. So. Maybe, you know, it, it imprints in my mind somehow. Mm-hmm. We pretend like it's a possibility. And to me, it's, like, it's obvious. The, degree, the only question is the degree to which. Yeah. Like you, every child, every listener of this podcast will be able to agree with the fact that when, as a child, whenever you saw something that, had your, that bore your name, hey, that's my name. Oh, hey, that's that's the day. That's you my feel bir- like instant kinship with it totally. for some reason. Yeah. Oh, this is the day. That's yeah. my birthday. That yeah. that thing's the same as that's yeah. the same as me, right? Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, the only the fact I heard floating around is probably true. Maybe it isn't. Yeah. Is that there's a disproportionate amount of Amelias as female pilots hmm. because of Amelia Earhart? You know. Interesting. The first woman to cross the Atlantic in a little yeah. airplane, right? So. You know, big surprise. You develop mm. idols. This is something like as a kid, you're three years old. Mm. You're you're told who are famous Amelia. So you're like, well, this one. Well, then autumn, you're three. Mm. You don't have that much discernment as to who you choose as your heroes. Mm-hmm. It's just like this person did a heroic thing. Let them be my hero. And before you yeah. know it, you grow up with this like sense of over there on that mountain on Mount Olympus, my hero is this person. Yeah. It's like it, I I think it's much bigger than we possibly. Expect. I don't think I've ever heard of a figure in the world with my name. Um, I'm sure they exist, but I never had access or like was exposed to any of them. And I think I've only met two other people with my name in my life. It's a very interesting experience. So name hasn't played a huge role. I mean, meaning, yes, meaning-wise, it's really yes, exactly. inspiring to me. Um, but in terms of like seeing it reflected out back in the world, back to me. But I think what you're speaking about too, it opens this whole other branch of contemplation, which is really interesting. The concept of like representation in the world and how that shapes who you become. Mm. Like this is a huge conversation that keeps happening in media all over the world, right? Is like how does the possibility of life, different kinds of lives and identities, and people from different areas in the world how does that representation actually affect a social mind? How does it affect a young person to see someone who looks like them reflected back to them or with a similar name or a similar background or a similar whatever, going through these experiences that are then spread across the mass conscious of storytelling or so on and so forth? So representation is a very interesting experience like in both ways of like how much does it actually affect who we believe that we are and who we can become? And like what's the double-edged sword there? Like how is that both a positive thing and also 
a limitation thing that comes in and happens. It's it is very interesting. Like belief is such a crazy rabbit hole to mm. like really unpack. I really I wonder about it all the time. Like I had this experience the other day where I I contemplated uh, what would be like on the topic of astrology. Um, what would be my sign if I was born three hours later? Like, let's say my mama, after having me as a baby, was just like kind of tweaked out a little bit, just had a kid, and just thought it was the wrong time and told me that it was the wrong time. And like my whole life, I'd had this idea that like, I'm a Scorpio. You know what I mean? Um, and so I did it. I was like curious. I went in and I put it, I was like, what if I was born at 7.30 in the morning instead of, by the way, my birth time is 4.20. I'm very proud of it. But like <laughs> instead of like 4.20 in the morning, I was born at 7.30 in the morning. I would be a Sagittarius. Wow. Right? And so, like, depending on how much of my subconscious impression of my character and my mythological alignment lines up with, say, a Scorpionic one. And when I'm talking about these, I'm not talking so much in the realm of, realm of astrology. I'm talking more about the realm of, like, archetypal psychology, like the myth. Like, Scorpio is seen as the underworld creature. Very much so, right? And like very much about like passion, ambition, the alchemists, the ones that go so deeply into emotional complexity and oceans and they uncover what is like the philosopher's stone concept, right? So the whole mythology and the whole archetype of the philosopher's stone and the alchemical process of turning, um, what is it, lead into gold. Um, that's the basis of the story of this idea of scorpion. Scorpio archetype. Meanwhile, Sagittarius is the mythological archetype of the truth seeker, the sage, the wise one that, that departs from all of society and all emotional attachment and all of everything that the Scorpio archetype is characterized by. Abandons it all for the pursuit of truth and the wandering of the nomadic lifestyle where you have the ability to have this fire and impulse to create truth and justice and clarity in this world, like completely different mythological archetypes. Mm -hmm. And for myself personally, I resonate with all of them, most of them, because really it's just the archipelago of like all of the gods and goddesses mm -hmm. we've ever created. But like this tiny little thing, like how much does that actually subconsciously influence the way that I perceive my purpose in this world? And like astrology is one that is a contentious topic because some people get really riled up about how much they don't like astrology. It's quite funny. I've watched people go into like full on fits of like, it's not real. I'm like, okay, it's fine, <laughs> whatever. But there's all <laughs> of these different systems of belief that exist in the world that we never even take into consideration that we believe in, you know? I, I find this the most fun when I talk to people who are atheists or like intense scientists or whatever else that believe that they exist entirely out of the realm of belief and bias. They're like, I don't have it because I don't believe in like the most common collective shared beliefs in the world. I'm like, but you still have beliefs. There you go. And you still have systems of cosmology that you ascribe to that have the roots in this it's particular part of truth, have, yeah. but it is nonetheless its own form of cosmology. And that's why I've always found the switch from the conversation of like religion and as associated to belief and faith into cosmology, because anywhere you go with any community or any group of people or any individual person, we all have our cosmology story, we have our origin story. What do we think we are? Where do we think we are? And what is the nature of the place and the dynamics of the place that we are? We all have a cosmological story in our minds, all of us, regardless of whether we belong to a, a collectively shared cosmology or not. And so then you start to go into all these, like for example, in the work with indigenous cultures, you start to uncover these like really deep, rich stories of origin stories. And I think it was, um, what was his name? He's a phenomenal um, anthropologist. 
I will remember it. But anyways, he said something at one point in time. He was speaking about the topic of belief and how when you're sitting with an indigenous person, they will speak to you about this mountain in front of you being alive. It is the backbone of a turtle that once spun in circles and created all of the lands that we live on and so on and so forth. And then you will speak to somebody who works in the mining industry and you're like, what is this mountain? And they're like, resources, money, electricity, whatever, whatever they see it as, resources. Um, and then he sits down and he says, both of those beliefs are true in some capacity in some sense. You know, when you go through like all of the flowery language of a lot of cosmology stories, they actually connect more often than not to subconscious memories that exist in human beings around geological events that happen in the world, like the splitting of seas, for example, and different things like that. We associate these big flowery stories to them. But when you go through the history of the world, you're like, huh, are we having these weird dreams of things that happened to our ancestors and then assigning story to them? Anyways. The point he was making is whether the belief is true or not is less relevant than the kind of person and behavior that that belief produces, if that makes sense. So if you believe the mountain to be a god or you believe the mountain to be a resource, who's to know who's right? Honestly. Mm -hmm. If you treat it like a god, it will give you life as God does. It will be your creator because it will consistently subsist and maintain your life. If you treat it as a resource, you will mine it and it will produce resources for you. They're both right. Mm -hmm. It's less important who's right. Mm -hmm. It's more important about like what does that result in, this belief system that you have. Yeah, Bulldozers or a maintained ecosystem that subsists and nourishes 10 to 15 generations to come after you. I'm just saying you know? there are two beliefs that are equally true, but one side has a bulldozer mm-hmm. or one side has dynamite. And mm-hmm. in other words, that the actions that are then mm-hmm. connected to the mm-hmm. execution of their belief yeah. um, produce an outcome that yeah. ultimately can't be responded to in, yeah. A, yeah. in a normal way. Yeah. You know, I, I've had an enduring skepticism mm. about um, astrology. Sure. But... I've also recognized that what we call astrology is something that has so many meanings that mm-hmm. there are many versions of which have no bearing as to how it's practiced. Definitely. So I'm also not the type of person who's a c- mm. got a closed mind to the concept, but sure. I see that the way a lot of people connect to it, yeah. I'm like, maybe just like open the mind in some interesting yeah. different ways. Uh, however, if people believe the things that they believe, mm-hmm. they believe them. Mm-hmm. So it's not really important to me what it is that they believe. Yeah. Because it's, r- like you, you said, there are people yeah. who will fight you. It's not real. It's like, no, you're actually wrong. You're, you yeah. are patently wrong. It yeah. is real. Yeah. Because they, they believe it's real. And it's subsisted and existed for thousands of years, and it shapes the way that people uh, behave. So there's a realness to it. But, sorry, continue. I'm Imagine you create a TV going. show. Yeah. Or, or put out media. What, yeah. What's interesting is we say if, if somebody believes something, it makes them real for them. Yeah. But what if... Okay, one person believes something, but another hundred also believe it. Yeah. They all individually believe it, but they yeah. also all know that everybody else does as well. Yeah. How does that do how does that affect the propagation of myth? Yeah. Yeah. And how and much th- power do you actually have? And I also think one of the very fascinating things about myth, and you touched on this a little bit, is like there's a very big difference between a body of knowledge or story that's been created and the way that somebody responds and uses that body of knowledge in their own sense of self. Like, So for example, with astrology, let's say, um, what I see happening is there's these d- diverging lines of how to understand 
this piece of information or this piece of knowledge that's been passed down for thousands of years in cultures on every corner of the planet, like the Mayans and the, um, the indigenous tribes of South and Central America and even in North America, but in a different system had their own version of using the stars to understand life. The Egyptians had it, the Sumerians had it, like every ancient culture we can think of had some spin-off on the concept of looking towards stars and cosmological influences in terms of understanding life. But there's a very distinct difference on how that's understood in modern day versus ancient day. So in ancient day, if you look at something like an astrological wheel, what you're looking at is not um, a person's identity. What you're looking at is not personal to you. It's not about you. It's not about like, oh, I am Scorpio, therefore I embody all of the signs and all of the power of this particular constellation and planet. No, it's more of like, this is the nature of elements and patterns and how they move through the world. And when you study this body of knowledge, you're studying it to understand the phenomenon of relationships and interconnectivity and a broader scale of all things that life is made of. So you're looking at it of like, what are these myths? How do they relate to each other? What is the nature of them? What is the elemental nature of them? How do these things move? You're studying it as a body of knowledge of like, a science of life in some degrees through the process of mythology and elemental theory and story and so on and so forth. In a modern concept, what we do with it is we use it to create identity boxes that somebody fits in. So like, are you a Gemini? That means you're this, 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 that, and this, 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 is that, and that's who you are. And so I can entirely understand why people have such a visceral reaction. We're like, no, like I don't want it. You know what I mean? Because it's been um, adulterated due to a lack of understanding of what it truly is um, into this framework of like, this is who you are as a person. You have a predetermined personality, destiny, and will, and this is all you will ever be. Like it becomes very like, um, what's the what's the right word? It becomes like very restrictive. It becomes almost like slightly like tyrannical. You're like, excuse me, like I'm I do sorry, have I'm a, a Gemini. like I don't do that. Like excuse like, and then when somebody puts it onto you that like because you're a Gemini, oh, this is how you have to be, and you're like bullshit. Like I I'm a complex human <laughs> being. I have an identity. Oh you gosh. know what I mean? Like you're it's such a Leo. <laughs> God. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Go. So like we're talking about two very different processes, but we're talking about the same fundamental subject. And that's why I've always found it to be one of the most fascinating practices in any part of my life. That when I'm talking to someone about something and it's a shared word or experience or thought or action that we have, um, to like slow down for a beat and be like, hold on, what does that mean to you? Like if you get into an argument with someone where you're like going in circles and they're like, you don't respect me you disrespect me. And then you on the other side are like, yeah, well, you dismiss me all the time, right? And you're going in these circles and nothing's ever getting solved. And you talk about it a million and one times and it keeps happening. Pain At what point in time do you stop and you ask the person who's like, what does respect mean to you? Yeah, that's it. How does that's respect move? Because like inside of me, I'm respecting the living shit out of you. Yeah. In my mind, based on what, what I think respect is, I've been respecting you like crazy. And you just keep coming back to me with this disrespect thing. Yeah. And vice versa, right? And so I think that with all things in life, that's a really fascinating practice. Like at what point in time do you stop and ask, hold on, what is the definition of this word that we are just taking for granted that we both share, you know? And how much would it change our conversation if we realized we're talking about two completely different fucking things and we're trying to debate them and not coming to a common ground, you know? Isn't that the danger of language? 
Mm -hmm. This concept that we're all acculturated at a young age to learn mm -hmm. to speak as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And that oh, this word means this, this word means this. And then cat and dog, which are pretty straightforward signifiers, get mm -hmm. thrown into the same mix as words like independence and respect mm -hmm. and integrity. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but these words, how, what does integrity mean? Oh, it means that like, oh, you're held together like a building that's pretty strong. Mm -hmm. You know, someone who's been given a good definition of the word integrity will, might have a fundamentally different relationship to how, what that word Definitely. actually means. Yeah. You know, I I went to this philosophy discussion group where they vote on a question and then and then we discuss it in this really mechanical way, mm -hmm. which I think is a really terrible way to discuss it, by the way. But um, mm -hmm. the question that they voted for was, and I thought it was also a silly question at the time. I scoffed at it, but something very interesting came out of it. They said, "Is independence necessary for a happy life?" Mm -hmm. My first, my independence. She said, <laughs> thing. "Is independence necessary for happy?" But she barely spoke English. She's for a happy life, mm. and I scoffed at it. I thought, you know, like, what kind of question is that? Like, how on earth are we supposed to unpack that question? Yeah, that's what I said, I, and I just said it in this sort of, all right, I got a comment. Yeah. What do you, What do you mean by independence? Yeah. And before you knew it, over a course of two hours. 20 people were all just contributing to that, the, their place in the ring of trying to explain to them what independence meant. Mm -hmm. And you could see so palpably that every single opinion had diverged from the other. And sure, yeah. there were places of overlap, but yeah. ultimately there was so much of their own thing. Yeah. And that we use the same word to signify like we're talking about the same thing. But we're talking about completely different subjects, completely different experiences, goals, ways of living. And I think it like ties back into that same concept that we were talking about a little bit earlier, this idea of like the culture shaping questions. Like even just something as simple as like, what does community mean? Oh my God, that word especially. That word alone, like even if you just had three people in a room, you could talk about that for days on end and not reach any real tangible sort of conclusion. You know what I mean? And I think that part of like, when we're in relationship to people, you were talking earlier about like this tendency of men and women also to go into this place of like, we've got to fix this. This idea of like solution-oriented thinking. Solution-oriented thinking is very important, but the process of solution-oriented thinking is a completely different conversation. Like, oftentimes, if you want to come up with like really effective solutions to anything, whether it be a cultural issue of how do we define something, or what do we agree upon within this particular community or culture as a definition for this thing, the process of getting to the solution has to be very creative and inquisitive, you know? And I think like even when we're talking about startups and innovative companies that have been able to fundamentally change the nature of an industry or the world itself, like Apple, for example, as a company, Apple has changed the world. Of course. Apple is just not, not just like a really good product. Like Apple has fundamentally changed the nature of culture, community, society, and communication globally. Yeah. In a matter of like, has it even been two decades? Mm -hmm. Like what? <laughs> and their solution-oriented process has a lot to do with like really taking the fundamental things that we take for granted and creating a really open space of asking the question of like, what is this? and then keeping it an ongoing conversation that never really ends, you know what I mm. mean? And I think it's the same thing within like cultural context and relational context, like in a relationship structure. And here I'm talking everything from like a romantic relationship to a friendship to the relationship you have with land, the relationships that build community, that ability to stay in a constant process of re redefinition and integrating into like what things mean, I think creates a lot of health. It creates a space which allows for both agreement and some level of like stability, but also the sense of freedom, 
Like in all of my relationships, I felt this very deep, contentious tension between the need for security and the need for freedom. And two things that seem so intensely in contradiction to each other. And I found myself in all of these relationships which were so polarized. I'm like, I need freedom. I need spaciousness. I need to breathe. I need to explore. I need to grow. And then the other person on the other side is like, I need security, I need stability, I need assurance, I need the maintenance of things as they are for a period of time so that I can feel safe to open and to grow. And it felt like this like trickster joke. It felt like the trickster was just like fucking with me at some point in time because I'm like, how is it possible that I keep ending up in these situations? And then whenever I settle into stability, then the other person's like, you know what? I think I need freedom, mm. you know? And you're like, really? Like there's mm. this moment where you're like, really mm. but I think it is very much contained within like the processes of how you engage with each other so like how often can you come back to the drawing board and be like there's this thing that we agree upon and that we take for granted in each other what is it actually what That's is it the actually beauty of what trying is it to actually? continue a relationship yeah. and the determination to commit to that who are you now? Who are you now? Who are you now? And that's Who the beautiful part of it. Yeah. Is the constant yeah. knowing, the constant mm, yeah. Yeah. channels. And when it comes to things like independence and these defined values as a culture and as a community, because I honestly believe that our, our cultural landscapes, our social landscapes, our political landscapes, all of them are an expression of the minutia, the microcosm of relational integrity and relational processes blown up on a macrocosm. Mm -hmm. Like I laugh about this all the time. It's like I watch how people organize in these huge societal things and we believe that the social environment is so like, it's this big behemoth. It's become this belief in the system that's almost taken on a life of its own that we forget that all it actually is is how we treat each other. <laughs> Like all it actually is, yeah. is the formation of multiple relationships. So when people ask, you know, how do we change a society? It's like change the relationships in the society. Mm -hmm. If you like, uh, have you ever watched, there's this really funny, funny movie that was made about a small Lebanese village, a Christian Lebanese village that had like Muslims come move into it. <laughs> and it's hilarious. The humor in it is just like top notch. And the soundtrack is top notch. It's mm. hilarious. Mm. Um, and it's all about like the tensions, the political and the social and the personal and the romantic tensions and, mm. and, 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 and all of these sorts of things. But I think it does an exemplary role at like showing this. Like if you just, because within the society, what happens? The men are acting a fool. Yeah, they're all fighting with each other. <laughs> the Christian men and the Muslim men are having these like huge beefs that are turning into war of like, this is my territory, my land, my this, my that. <laughs> So what do the women do in the village? They decide to take a collective sexual strike in all of their oh, marriages wow. and relationships with all of the men. And they, they bound up. Like the Christian, the Muslim women make this like communal agreement. They're like, until they get their shit together, none of us are having sex. This is hilarious. Hilarious. This is great. It's hilarious. What a story. And like at first it's like tension and na 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 and complication. <laughs> and like women got their needs too, so they're struggling and yeah. you get to see their struggles and all this sorts of stuff. <laughs> but then it starts to like filter out into like how within each of these marriages and the conversation that happened in the marriages there based on the lack of having sex and so on and so forth. And then the men collectively getting together and be like, boys, is this happening to you too? Like, what's happening? You know, and then the men, the Muslim and the Christian men start to bond over their shared exactly. sorrows of exactly. Not getting any at home, you 
know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's like this little thing where you just like slightly manipulate the relationships within a community can actually change the social and the political structure of that community. And we're talking about colonial states like Canada, it's a different story because like there's just so many people. Um, but when we're talking about like smaller scale social change, which is how it usually happens, uh, it's in our relationships. It's in the ways that we deal with each mm. other. And I'm not suggesting that we go on sexual strike, although that could be very I, impactful. I see it. <laughs> right? I, see I think it, it could be a very good idea. idea. No, I see it as the real um, one-state solution to this. Yeah, yeah. Israel and Palestine just come, like, all the women close your legs. Yeah, exactly. Go. exactly. <laughs> like, what happens? Yeah. <laughs> lots of power there. Lots of power there. We can um, all enjoy the beach then. <laughs> <laughs> can we all just swim? <laughs> yeah, let them out. Let's go. We need to talk to our history teacher from high school. Which one? Uh, oh wait, uh, yeah. He wait. told us about. <laughs> <laughs> he told us about this strike that happened at some point in the four thousand year empire mm. of mm-hmm. Egypt, where all the women just got together and said, "You know what? This this kind of sucks. <laughs> so um, <laughs> we're we're gonna just we're gonna stop having sex with our with our husbands and with everybody. We're just all gonna stop. Yeah. And all the women, they got together. It was basically feminists, you know? Yeah. But they just all got together. They were all pissed off and said, all right, no more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no more sex. Yeah. And all I remember from this lesson of the day, the thing that left the most impression, I don't remember who it was, I don't remember why it happened, was that it was extremely effective. Very effective. Yeah. In very short <laughs> order, the man conceded to the demands. <laughs> <laughs> And that was one of the this reasons. This happens in the microcosm of relationships as well. Not suggesting that it's a healthy way to deal with conflict, mm. but it mm. also. I think works. the I have solidarity. To this disclaimer. I'm like, don't do it. It's much better <laughs> okay, if good. all women are doing it together. It's sort of like there's way more solidarity. Because if they are not. He's going to sweet talk you and yeah. you're going to. No, no, no. Then it's going to break the whole strategy. No, no, no. Everyone, like the women just have to <laughs> rile each other up to the point that they recognize that this is non negotiable. Like, you know, this is. But I mean, it's also dangerous. Because if all the women stop having sex with all the men and the men that don't concede and the women have their needs, they might just start having sex with each other. Well, maybe the women... <laughs> this, this will happen. This is a possibility. And like, they'll be fine. They can maintain it as long as they exactly. need to physically I think they should it. actually. Otherwise, That's they won't be able to maintain it. That's a good strategy for unity. It's a great unity strategy. Or you just choose a group if of men. If we take care of each other, we're good. What about just don't the, go over there. These are, the approved men. these are the approved men that the bo- Council of Women have approved. That, like they have kind of mm, passed also, our threshold yeah. of the test. These are the men that are permitted for the sex. Mm. <laughs> this the could get ugly fast. Ha- this sounds like sexual fascism. The single women <laughs> of the equation have sexual to be tyranny. Two sizes is what same this sounds like. Yeah, but look, I think the thing about the tyranny that makes it interesting <laughs> is the degree, like, is the quality of your selection filter. Mm. That's what it's makes it really like abiding by that, that, like blind values. tyranny versus like pretty informed tyranny. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Like you could <laughs> ethical like, tyranny. Ethical. There should be just certain <laughs> views that you just you have that view. There's no sex. Honestly, though, like it's a thing, right? Like for example, when I was in Tunis, I was having a lot of conversations with people, and I'm not going to get too political about this because we don't talk about, we the, don't government, talk about the government. But, <laughs> but um, they were talking about the concept of like how at some points in time, this idea of like having one person at the helm that could just make decisions and make shit happen is actually kind of nice. This was like in the conversations of like the tension between democracy and other forms of ruling. You know, this idea of like sometimes having that ability to just lay down a really clear line and boundary can just be... Sometimes you need direction. Based on the moral compass of the person who's wielding the power. Oh, yeah. And that kind of like loops back to the conversation we've had. Like I... What I find very interesting is in the concept of revolution. Revolution is this very interesting... I met someone (laughs) in Tunis (laughs) who is uh, an artist. He creates film and so on and so forth. He's very politically driven. Yeah, and so he was talking about the idea that he doesn't believe that revolution 
is a solution to anything. Oh, I agree. And I was like, I agree with you so much because I feel like what oftentimes happens in revolution is that you have all of this emotional charge of people being like, this is not going to work anymore. Fuck this shit. Let's tear it all down to the ground. And they tear it all down to the ground. But there's never a conversation of like, yes, but what does work? What takes the place in the vacuum of power that is going to be created when we destabilize power over time? And what happens is that whenever there is a vacuum of power, the people most likely to fill that vacuum of power are those that are the hungriest for power, those that have done the least work the to understand the complexity and responsibility. Like I had a, my ex-partner was an amazing martial artist, and he always used to talk about this concept that one of the things that martial arts teaches you, because it gives you this insane amount of power to like, you know, in three moves, you could kill a person. So like on the back line of that, and I'm talking about like more of like weapons martial arts, kung fu martial arts, krav maga martial arts, the ones that are created to like kill people, mm. you know? Um, he says on the other back end of that is that you start to feel the weight of responsibility. So those that would often be the best leaders are those that are the most hesitant to do it because they understand like the, the bondage of being a leader, the bondage of being in control. Like when you have a lot of power, you lose a lot of freedom, like a lot of freedom. You know, and it's that, that's the tension that we see in the world right now around these ideas of cancel culture and people that get like in a day from a viral video, they now all of a sudden have this huge magnitude of power to influence mm. massive populations of people. But they are in no way wanting the responsibility that comes with that kind of power. Yeah, because then people come up to them and they're like, you now have a massive audience and you have a huge influence. Therefore, you need to be more discerning and controlled about the things you say and how you say them and no, no, no like nah man I want my freedom of speech back off mm. right so it's this like really weird interplay right now we have like power is so easy to grab and to garner and to fall into like in an instant but responsibility is something that we still have not collectively agreed upon <laughs> when it comes to power and it's part of the reasons that I don't really believe in revolution anymore it's like so okay you tear the system down then what yeah you're describing where I was in 2019 yeah that was the whole yeah. thing mm -hmm. the whole thing I, I the play on words. Yeah. Revolution. Yeah. You're evolving, revolving, revolving. It's a revolving door. Wow. Yeah. And then, then we yeah. get, we bought a website. Yeah. In 2022. Uh -huh. Propaganda. One of these days, I'm going to create a running list of all of the websites <laughs> you own that I hear about in bits and pieces. Uh, yeah, Prop <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, the name of this website, I'm not going to repeat again because I just erased it. Um, I always talk, I don't want to say this on the podcast because mm. I want to be a little more subtle about all this. We uh, can cut it out. Clap. Well, no. <laughs> Clap at the other end yeah, of it. Cut this, cut this, <laughs> cut this. But we'll never cut it. Um, I think it's good to be a daylight revolutionary. Mm. This, is, uh, this is where it's ended. The very mm. simple expression, go as you mean to go on. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you want to live in a society that has no violence, mm -hmm. I don't understand the logic mm -hmm. of using violence to make it happen. Well, sometimes you need violence. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, sure, but you're just going to produce more. Yeah. And then, look, you're also going to create a really peaceful society at some point if you do it all the right way, and then somebody's yeah. going to fuck you with violence at yeah. some point. Well, I think the denial of violence is going to create, again, desire smuggling of violence. You like need to be able to People have damage. violence in them, um, and we just need to create healthy, constructive spaces and ways in order to express violence so it doesn't keep creeping its way into our societies in these really, really fucked Blow up ways. Up. You know yeah. what I mean? And, like, I totally understand and hear what you're saying, and I think it even ties back into something we were 
were talking about earlier in terms of like social adaptations towards trauma, for example. Like if you wanted to create a social revolution of like just blowing everything up and putting it all on the table and bringing all the feelings together, like you gotta also understand there's consequences to that revolution. That means there's gonna be a bunch of people's pain just flying everywhere and everyone's gonna be talking about and actively healing their pain and there's a beautiful side to that. And then there's another side of like, do we have the resources? Do we have the therapeutic resources within our communities and within our social structures to handle all of the trauma that's about to come spilling out of the sides of all these people? Do we? It's and like if spontane- we don't, are we just taking all the toxins that are stored in people's muscles and then throwing it into their bodies and being like, deal with it? Like, well, we could. Where, we where, could. Is the, where is the construction there? Like, How is that a constructive process? It's not. What's the base level thing that you can add to every human being that would make them slightly more capable of being mm. able to help with that mm. outpouring of trauma? Mm. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier. I mm. just think intuitively, well, if just people hug people more. Mm. It seems like I'm not, look, I'm not trying to say that that's the, the secret. Mm. But what I'm saying is that it's going to have a positive effect. Definitely. The degree to which will be dependent on how good the hugs are, <laughs> uh, who's hugging are you, you a quality hugger? how responsible <laughs> you are you. to it. We need you. Know? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just one of those things yeah. that like it it will just improve things. Yeah. I have a list of fifty of these. Yeah. Of you know what it makes things me think that would improve of? things. Really interesting. Complete offshoot. Did you <laughs> know that in uh, North America, specifically in the west coast of North America, there's now services of like cuddle therapy? Yeah, where I'm you literally surprised. you pay somebody a hundred dollars for them to just hold you I for know an about hour. This. Like, I know that there's some therapeutic contacts for some people, like some seniors and different things like that, where, like, it's it's really important. But I just, like, for me, when I heard about it, the thought that went through my mind is, like, where have we gotten to as a society where you need to pay someone $100 just to hold you and play with your hair? Like, how have we lost that fundamental social fabric of touch to this degree where it is now actually a needed service? That it, it is. It's a needed service. I'm not shitting on the fact that it's there. But, like, the question has to come up of, like, how do we get here? I, I don't know. I, you know? Uh, to one extent, I think we could answer that in yeah. some very reductive way yeah. to say, well, you know, people have unexpressed emotions in mm. our society. And in fact, in most societies, they have unexpressed emotions. Yeah. Even in mo- little villages, you have yeah. unexpressed emotions. Yeah. And so what we're saying is that by social um, expectation, it's not too usual to take up all that space unless yeah. it's in a particular ceremonial capacity. Yeah. But it only happens like irregularly. Yeah. Right? And so having someone that you can pay is someone who, with whom you can have, you can fully hold, it, have the space be held yeah. for where it's like this, m- my money is my way of exchanging that the mm. time I'm being offered is for me. Yeah. And I have a friend yeah. whom I've been telling him for years mm-hmm. that you don't, he was failing his me- medical exams, mm. mostly because the construction of his life and being unemployed was putting him in a space, space of non-studying. But I know one thing I can tell you for a fact about this man is that he just has a big calming energy mm. that you could just hug him for an hour mm-hmm. and your life would be 65% better that day. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I would, I kept telling him like, dude, you don't need a medical degree. You can just open, I'll, I'll help you open the clinic. And he's mm-hmm. the type of Arab man who was like, no, this is stupid. This is stupid. And no surprise now that he's in a clinic, he's the most loved therapist for all the people there, but he could hug people, man. He's the most huggable human being you've yeah. ever met because yeah. you, he's yeah, big. <laughs> and I love big hugs. <laughs> I love the kind of people that, like, when you hug them, you literally like disappear into <laughs> their chest. Like you're just not there anymore. His <laughs> his version of big is like he was. He's always been very large. Yeah, but he's never been like. 
type yeah. of large. Like yeah, yeah. he's just like firm Santa large. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And very satisfying to very wrap. Very tight in. pillow. In Palestine, who are hey, We pillow. call them a wall. Like those Boom. people that are just built that way. They're yeah, but he's just massive. big too. Like yeah, uh, very yeah. big. Yeah. And but it's very satisfying. You always yeah. want to like you want to hug him and yeah. jiggle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he jiggles by himself. Yeah. He sits in rocking chairs. Yeah. So I want him. I want him to hear this and hear that it is a real profession that you could be paid a hundred dollars an hour for, yeah. at least. But it's so funny, like what you said about this idea that, like, socially, there's not really a lot of spaces like that. I think that's where those distinctions in terms of like living in different worlds based on your gender actually exists. Because I can tell you with full confidence it that, exists like, exists with women. Oh yeah, man! Like you even saw <laughs> it on the night that Renda, or you even saw it on the night when we had dinner, right? Like, we it's completely normal to just come over and be like. I'm going to like drape my body on you. And like it's not anything like weird or needs to be done in private or anything else like that. Like we just hold each other, hug each other, play with each other's that, hair. Yeah. Like if we're talking to each other or spending a day together, we'll like put face masks on each other and give like little massages and like play with each other's hair. Just as we're speaking about whatever it is that's happening. Like there's so much touch. There's so much touch. So beautiful. And if you're like a non-touchy person, and it exists, there are women who are not touchy people yeah. and like all the respect to them. But just like generally saying in terms of like social allowance there's a ton of social allowance for just the processes of touch just just being touched and that's why like still like even though with all of that touch like as somebody who receives a lot of touch in my life through my female relationships i still crave like a long touch with someone that you feel safe with like Mm. being held for a long period of time is a completely different experience than having someone play with your hair for like 10, 15 minutes. Like it's a completely, it's like a hug. It's like you hug someone for like five seconds, 10 seconds, like whatever, you hug, you know? Somebody stops and like hugs you for five minutes. You'll probably be crying at the end of this yeah, hug. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Definitely. all of the emotions are gonna come up. You're gonna feel the discomfort exactly. of being held by someone and na, 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 na. Like that's a different therapeutic application. But I feel like- It's not a joke, it's real, yeah, you know? Yeah, it's, man, it's a part of what we are. Like as human beings, we're actually biologically wired for co-communication and co-regulation through nervous systems. It's a part of how we are designed. Like the fact that you feel good when you get a hug? Yeah. Randomly? Anatomically, this is what we were created for. We were created for connection. We need each other to co-regulate. You You can do a lot of self-work. You can do a lot of shit on your own. You can take care of yourself. You can go and do so on and so forth. But it'll always feel like there's something fundamental missing. It's like when I see Eastern philosophies being projected through a hyper-individualistic Western lens, like the idea of attachment in social environments that exist now in the West. You'll see a lot of people be talking about this concept of like, all you need is yourself or this world. And I've gotten to a point where I've done this and that. So now I just protect my peace. If you this, if you that, and I'm just... I'm not trying. I'm trying not to get attached to anyone anymore because attachment is just pain. And you know, it's like taking this hyper individualistic lens and then trying to throw it on to like Eastern philosophy. Because in Eastern philosophy, when we talk about attachment, it's like my guy, you're never gonna live a life where you can just cut people off and not see them. Like we live in these hyper uh, communal environments. So like the non-attachment is a very internal process of emotional and mental discipline and control and and creation, but it doesn't result in the lack of connectivity. To people that you mm-hmm. don't necessarily doesn't, like doesn't cut yeah like if somebody annoys you you create like internal boundaries but you got to deal with them they still exist in your community and in your world you can't just cut them off like you can in an environment like in a western nation where you can genuinely just like 
cut someone and never see their face again. And like, there's no way that they re-enter into your space whatsoever. It's not as possible in communal environments. But like, it's at the foundation of that is the understanding that like, sure, you can do all of this healing work. You can do all of this meditation. You can travel all of the Himalayas all over the world and do everything you've ever done. But if you've never had to practice being in relationship and healing in the context of relationships, true. How's that going to translate? It's like what Ram Das says, right? He's like, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a weekend with your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do all of these practices, but if they are not actively being practiced in the context of relationships that challenge you, it's kind of like intellectual exercise. Yeah, like it's a practice, but that's the point. It's a practice, and then the real, like the game that you play this practice in is life. Mm-hmm. It's relationships. It's connection. It's people who piss you off and trigger you and make you feel like, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's where it actually comes into real play. And so it's an interesting thing, you know? It's like we need those therapeutic moments. And also we need to, as people, embrace the fact that we need each other. There's no way of getting around it. We can survive without each other, sure. But it's a, it's also like it's a bullshit survival. Like I remember having this conversation with somebody in Canada who was talking about this idea that we now live in a time where we don't need anyone or anything. We completely can be self-sufficient. I'm like... What are you talking Who grows about? your food? Who transports your food to the grocery store where you buy it? Like, nothing that you are doing is full self-sufficiency. Were you your self-sufficiency to? is that you are making the money to give yourself access to people's services without having to know these people. That's it. That's the You're difference. removing... Yeah. yeah. You think what self-sufficiency is, is cutting off the relationships with the people who provide you sustenance. But the reality is, is there's still a whole whack of people providing your sustenance. You just don't have any relationships to them. You're buying the the privilege to not know those who work that's the, to make your life That's possible. like the barakeh that's missing in the Western societies. It's yeah, like that yeah. they're cut off from people. Yeah. That, and they, f- yeah. they f- believe that the continuation of their life is just yeah. based on their own free yeah. will and their own decisions. And they go through these existential crises once they start to realize how many people are supporting their lifestyles. Like how many times has a documentary been released into a Western society? They're like, oh my God, can you believe that our phones are made by these people in these spaces and so on and so forth? Like there's just this complete like disconnect Mm -hmm. like the majority of the people living in western nations have never met the farmers that grow their food like never even cross through their towns like they don't even have an idea like it's it's a like it does not exist and like it's starting to happen more in different countries but here in jordan like we know the khudarji man and he knows the guy who sells us the meat and we have these conversations (laughs) and there's this baseline understanding that like sure you might have the money to go buy the thing but if you have a good relationship with the person who's providing that thing with you it enriches the quality of what you're gonna get Mm You know, it, it makes your life more resilient, more bounce backable. Like if we run out of water, for example, if you're friends with somebody who knows somebody that lives at a will, like you understand that the nature of your relationships and your connections doesn't only sustain your way of life, but it creates resilience and adaptability where you don't always have to be so fucking panicked and anxiety ridden that like if I lose a job, I have nowhere to live. I'll have no eat food to eat, like I'll die. It's this feeling of like, I will not be able to live if I, for any reason, cannot provide this particular service or this particular resource. Meanwhile, in other countries and other communities and cultures, it's this understanding of like, yeah, that's really shitty and I have to get another job, but like, I'll be fine. 
I'll be fed. No. Like, no one's going to let me go starve on the side corner <laughs> exactly. of the street of all of my friends and my family. Like, I still have to pick myself up and take care of myself. But there isn't this feeling of, like, I'm completely alone in this world if I can't sustain That's myself. That's why homelessness is at a very low uh, rate yeah. right here. You yeah. Know? And yeah. even the people who are working on the streets. Like, I have two good friends. That There's an adorable young man. His name's Ahmed. He's constantly selling socks right by Rumi. Like, they're like older brothers to him. Like, when he comes to them, he doesn't even, like, ask, do you want to sell something? Like, they hug him, they kiss his head, they bring him some food, they have a conversation about the family, they update each other. Like, they're friends. And they're just doing their thing. Yeah, and, like, to to him, he doesn't have any older brothers, but he has these two men at Rumi that always take care of him and that treat him like a younger brother that'll actually, like, sit him down and have conversations with him because he holds up a whole family of six kids that he's responsible for taking care of. You know what I mean? So there's this... um. This idea of connectivity, it runs to the absolute core of our well-being as people. And that's why, like, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about mental health in the West. Because, like, there's a lot, like, there's a mental health epidemic in the West. Like, uh, there's so many people struggling with, like, crippling anxiety and crippling panic attacks and crippling depression Mm. and so on and so forth. And we have mental health issues here in the Middle East as well. We really, really do. And we probably don't hear as much about them because... Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who's anxiety ridden, we just say like, oh, they've just got a lot of energy, they're fine. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a huge dismissal of mental health issues in the Middle East. But also, and also, um, there's also this reality that I think that the instances of like increased rates of suicide, normalizing suicide to such a degree um, mm-hmm. outside of the context of like truly unlivable circumstances or truly like unthinkable levels of like physical pain or whatever else it might be, we're getting to a point where people are experiencing such intense mental and emotional pain that it's like paralleled up with the level of physical pain of say being in a constant state of neuralgia. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like they're incredibly lonely. Incredibly you know the issue with lonely. this sickness of loneliness yeah. um, is if you don't eat food for a certain amount of time you'll die. Yeah. If you don't drink water for a certain amount of time you'll die. So those needs in the way mechanistically how they built themselves into your f- system they produced these like boundaries that were very clear mm-hmm. that just said you need food but when it comes to your own mental health those boundaries don't have nearly the same binary nature mm-hmm. um you go a day without sleep a day with bad emotional interaction without any healing Mm. It accumulates without the pressing sense of there's this thing that happened. Like we were talking about earlier, sometimes it's massive blunt force trauma that, mm. that you can sort of heal from because you know that there's a problem. You at there's least know where to ste- look. Those yeah. little steps. We were yeah. mentioning it earlier at breakfast. Yeah. You don't know those steps. Yeah. I also just wanted to say that this podcast is unofficially brought to you by Chocolonely Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> that is slavery-free. 100% slavery-free chocolate. 100%. 100%. And just to make note that there are a variety of chocolate brands that do not make the claim on their bar mm-hmm. that they are 100% slavery-free. And that's Which how we're different. inevitably that they are using slavery. The, the, the silence. <laughs> the silence. Silence speaks very loudly. Yeah. I, I don't want to say the names of a few chocolate bars, but you know who you are because you're basically everyone who's not chocolate only. 
Chocolate would be very Isn't nice. Isn't that amazing how you can <laughs> point the finger at everyone else by making one statement about yourself? Passive aggression. Passive, passive aggression. aggression. The Canadians have perfected it. <laughs> I've gotten a crash course of passive aggression over the years. But you can use passive aggression with some panache to, like, to really win. Yes, yes. Yeah, but like in a, in a marketing institutional level, you know what I mean? Like they, yeah. They're very effective at making, making me realize that everyone else is using slaves, right? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this a couple podcasts ago. I said, look, you know, I, I want to do the right thing in the world. I just want to know that like there's people there's not slaves that are doing the things but that you know I also supporting. think sometimes it's used irresponsibly like the other day I can't remember what it was that I was eating I think I was eating like an almond I, I don't remember what it was it was something that was entirely random that there is no way that gluten is used in the process of like <laughs> on average creating this food product or this it's like, like food stuff guitar. yeah and then like on the label like, it came from a relatively like a bougie place somewhere in Swiftia village something like this and then I was reading it and it said like gluten free and vegan I'm like, who's putting Where's meat products the in honey? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, guys, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. But it's it just, just gets a to a point that when someone is like gluten-free or vegan or, or this idea that everything gluten-free or vegan is it's like good. inherently yeah. healthy yeah, and yeah, yeah. superior it's in its health benefits it and other things, it just seeps so deep inside of your mind that if you had a bag of like normal almonds and then a bag of almonds that says gluten-free, soy-free, you'll be like... Yeah, okay, this <laughs> seems like more sound. You know what I mean? And you'll pay five JDs for exactly. this like bag of gluten-free fucking almonds. And then the other one is the same almonds, but it's like a JD or like half a JD. And you're like... Can I tell you some way that Jordan takes this even further? <laughs> you could find a package uh, in big, big supermarkets of 24 eggs, real eggs. Yeah. Chicken eggs. Yeah. They're real eggs. And it says vegan on... <laughs> They're like, vegan is more expensive. Vegan is good. Vegan is healthy. You could put vegan on your bakery, on your butcher, and nobody will say anything. No one's going to say that the FDA of Jordan is going to like regulate you. The packaging. Like the other day, I was in one of the khudarjis in Swathiya, not in the village, but like just in general. And they had like this little, like pretty, like brown cardboard package with like a picture of like a happy little chicken, whatever. And it was like organic local eggs. And then next to them was like a bird baladi. It was like a huge platform of like 60 something eggs. Like, you know, the ones they are like the family pack eggs. And I sat down with the woman. I'm like, where did these eggs come from? And where did these eggs come from? Like, what's the actual difference? They're the same fucking eggs. What? They're the same eggs, guys. It's just like how you slightly different, it. slightly different in terms of like who's putting it together and how they're putting it together. The more well packaged is like this small startup that wants to like support yeah. local production of yeah. food. And, and, and that's why I find in Jordan is so funny. Like, when you have programs open up or companies open up that are like, we support local food production and this is like their whole PR strategy. I'm like, Yo, Jordan is a very locally food exactly. producer. Like it's so easy it to is. find local food. Like you just have to go to the people of the actual <laughs> country to find local food and it's dirt cheap. Yeah, of course. It's dirt cheap. <laughs> like the only people that need these services are the ones that live very disconnected just from unaware. like the locals of the country yeah. in very like kind of bougie, more like foreigner dominated or very Wealthy it's very urban. Community. Right, idea. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's like you could literally just go to Airport Road and like wait for the guy with his sheep to walk by and like take one of the like That's the most organic, grass-fed, wild, free-range, healthy lamb you are ever going to eat in your life. <laughs> that's why I like lamb. Yeah. I'm getting to like it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love lamb. Right, I have so an idea great. for a Robin Hood like concept. Okay. Uh, you know, like, couldn't we? Because like. I can tell you my own skills. Sure. I'm pretty good at presenting an idea, uh -huh. making something attractive. Yeah. It's just something I'm good at. Um, I also can do pretty good 
product design yeah. and at least have good ideas. Maybe execution would be helpful to have someone with a couple more skills, especially in illustration, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, you, we could easily, easily come up with a series of products that are just literally just repackaging. That's yeah. where black beans came from. Like taking a product that is fully existing and repackaging it, tripling the price, uh -huh. and then using that as a way of siphoning money from people who don't need their money, obviously have it in excess, and putting it towards things that you think those are good places for the money to go. You know what I mean? Like you could easily take a hand soap that's just a stupid hand soap that costs no more than 50 cents and package it to be a, a 9JD soap. Yeah. And you put a little bit like of herbs even little in there for like, a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's things like olive is. oil soap, like El Sabon Zaituni, right? Like for example, you can find that soap everywhere for super cheap. It's very easy to make. It's very local. It's like everybody uses it. Like even when you go into like Bedouin tents in the south, they're using olive oil soap. You can get that for dirt cheap. All you got to do is add a few essential oils. And like market it as like treasure. all natural olive oil traditional soap, and then just like write on the packaging all the health benefits of olive oil and like how these olives were grown in the mountains of Palestine and shit like that. And you can sell that same bar of soap for like ten JDs. It's just olive oil soap. You know, you've added like a couple drops of rose. <laughs> like it's not, it's not anything special. And soap yeah. has been done right, but yeah. my point is you can do it to any product. Absolutely yeah. any product. Yeah. And something I've also developed a skill for is yeah. to say everything without saying a thing. Mm. Don't make any claims. Mm. Nothing that somebody's going to say, well, you said. Yeah. No, you just dance, like flower all the language around that you never actually said anything. Masterful evasion of accountability. Yeah. Bravo. Ev evade your accountability <laughs> completely. This, this skill is a double-edged sword, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Of course. It's yeah. Because any power is. Right? Yeah. It's a very very strong power to use. And, but yeah. I, like, that's why I'm really pumped about this guy who's going to be here. Because he, when I offer the idea, he's like, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> and then we go do it. Then he does and it, yeah. now having a group of people here also thinking, you know, why couldn't you like literally just come up with a product where all you need to do is find the supplier, yeah. find the packaging people, and create a deal with the supermarkets. Yeah. Look, I want to sell rice, a bag of rice that you would otherwise sell for 50 cents. I want to sell it for 10 JDs. That's my challenge. And then I want to use that money to support farmers <laughs> in this situation. But I'm never going to say that on the packaging mm -hmm. because I don't want them, like their emotional guilt of supporting farmers to be propelling their... I just want them to think that this rice is the special rice. Yeah. I don't say anything. I don't say anything about what this rice does to you. It's just this is the special rice. This is the, the good stuff. The way you... <laughs> come on, what could stuff. you call it? The rice? How would, what would it packaging feel like? How, would it, how could you package rice in a way that made you pay 10 JD for the rice? You would want the packaging to be something that feels like kind of rustic, kind of like farmy, but at the same time like classy and kind of high class. So I would imagine with the branding, the specific colors that you would want to use are a little bit more like uh, a basic palette, like kind of like luxury colors that are things like beige and white and deep maroons and things like that. And then like have a really beautiful like emblem that requires, like symbolizes that it's like high quality, but then stories of the farmers etched onto the back of the packaging, things like this, you know? What's the what's a country that somehow you could attach to it, like Scottish rice. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Scottish>. <laughs> like something that I got Scottish rice. I don't think the Scots make rice, do they? I feel like but you need like a patty system. It's funnier if they don't, yeah. by the way. <laughs> it's Irish rice. <laughs> just who's gonna who's gonna go on Google and like most people won't. No, they'll just be like, wow. I want Irish that. Rice. And you talk and you, your whole packaging is about like the Gaelic hills, you know, and about like and the, the, of the Gaelic and the picturesque climate or of the rains that happen. You know, you never say anything your about Your logo the rice. could just be like these like wisps of hills. It's very wispy. <laughs> very wispy. Very sure. like avant-garde, very hipster, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, maybe even there's like wood the in the packaging. The impression. Yes. Like wood and burlap. You could have like a little wooden strip that is used to like roll it back down. 
through the Irish rice. Yeah, and you could say that it's like harvested from this particular area. You don't have to say anything. <laughs> the name of you the area specifically. You don't have to say anything. You don't this is batch number 208. Exactly. Imagine the conversation between a couple of like one of them trying to justify the 15 JT purchase for this bag of rice. But it's batch number 208. <laughs> but like it's got this wood that yeah. we can repurpose. Exactly. And like <laughs> You give them reasons. That's it. The packaging is made of seeds. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. When you throw it out, it plants plants. <laughs> That's actually a really good one, though. Have you heard about these companies in California? So what they've basically done is they've created coffee cups that are made fundamentally out of uh, coffee grinds. Mm. So they use coffee grinds and then they put seeds in the coffee cup as well. And it can hold hot liquid in it for about 12 hours before it starts to degrade. And then when you throw it out and it gets thrown into landfills, it basically turns into this little bomb of fertilizer and seeds within other soil that you throw it in. So theoretically speaking, you're doing the planet a favor by littering this coffee yeah, this cup is a Japanese onto a method. But yeah, how do you how do you avoid the invasive species concept of hey, I just took my coffee cups with me to another country and now I just started <laughs> fucking planting. Them. Well, I go. think you would have to create like a localized coffee cup. Don't take it out. <laughs> this is the not allowed to leave the country. <laughs> exactly. I don't think that it would though, because it only has twelve hours of like livability hey, once liquid's dude, been put into 12 it. Twelve hours, I could go far. I could go to Tokyo in 12 hours. You know, in You're going to say, but no, because then it can't get past hyper security. The <laughs> only reason why that you would have that issue is if the cups themselves, without any liquid in you them, liquid. started being sent out to yeah, different companies. Yeah, but I can take the cup with me because like, some, like, there's a cool cup. This cup turns into seeds. Most people aren't going to think so much. I'm going to take it with me and show my, my, my nephew. You'd have to create Tokyo. a disclaimer the yeah, the FDA. to be oh, used in the hills of Los because that's definitely how it works, you know? Like it's not going to work. But then again, okay, so now we're getting into a very contentious topic within the herbal medicine and botany mm. community. This concept of like what is a native species and what is an introduced species. It's a native species. Our it's whole native. conversation started on Majnune, and we are circling right back to Majnune. Yeah, like Majnune is an example. For example, this plant is not native to this space. It mm. got brought over because some botanist dude, and also, fun fact, mm. he wasn't actually a botanist. His lover was the botanist, but she wasn't legally allowed to travel on the boats or to perform botany. So what he would do is bring her on all of his trips as his lover, and she would do all of the botanical work. Wow. Super interesting. She was the first woman. I mean, I don't know that this is true because this is from a European lens, but according to Europe, yes, then it's a she lie. was... <laughs> Well, they leave it's out a lot of no, shit. They, they leave a lot of shit out. Just, um, but they also liars. believe that they are like the first people to have ever done something because they haven't heard about the other people who've done it's it It's because they're white. Maybe. They're the first. Of course. But in either case, um, Majnune is a plant that is Brazilian that showed up here just because somebody really liked the way that the flower looked. They really wanted to have this flower in this particular region. And now it's become one of the staples of medicinal, edible, and ornamental decoration and like ecosystem of this land. So there's this huge contentious debate that happens amongst like botanists and herbalists and just basically the plant geeks of the world of like how do you actually draw delineated lines between which plants are native and which plants are introduced? Because if you follow any plant's history long enough, more often than not, it's been transplanted. Even the plants that we have that are a native plant or particular ecology or, or area have been at some point in time found in another location and then transferred over via seeds. Seeds get transferred over by wind. Like the ability to actually draw these very like delineated, intense identities for plants of like, you are native here. You are a local indigenous plant versus you are an introduced transplant plant. And this holds up a whole conversation about people also like over generations. Like if somebody has been living on a piece of land for like their family have been there for say 500 years. 
And they didn't originally come from there, but now you have like 10, 15 generations of people that are born, bred, lived, been shaped by this land. Their genetics have been slightly altered by the foods they're eating. At what point in time do they officially get the right to claim ownership to that land? And at what point in time do they lose that fundamental connection to their origin land? And I, last night when we were having this conversation about you know, our identity as Palestinian diaspora. And the mind, my mind was running, like as a woman in this world, my decision to have a child or not is much more limited. Like I have a certain amount of time to make this choice. Um, Cause I don't want to grow my baby in an artificial womb. If I'm gonna have a baby, I want to have a baby. Um, this responsibility starts setting in of like, oh, well shit, I have to continue the generations of Palestinians. And what does that mean? So if I fall in love with somebody who's not Palestinian, and I'm Palestinian, but I have quarters of myself that are Balkan, and I mix the bloodline over time, more and more and more and more, and I never go back and live in Palestine, and I decide to live in Italy or in Cambodia or whatever, and then this keeps on and keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. At what point in time do my children and my ancestors stop being Palestinians? Mm -hmm. And that's a, response, that's a choice that you have to make. Yeah, you know? it's this like weird like tasked thing that people of diaspora are tasked with because you have this like deep sense of loyalty and then you have these like, you have these transition generations. Like our parents didn't struggle with this as much as we will because our parents were still coming from a framework where like that identity was still so intensely rooted into their actual life experience. So they were passing that down inevitably to their children. It was their life. Yeah. But when I think about the life I'm going to pass down to my child, the life that I have lived, I have my Palestinian identity and my ideals and my all these sorts of things, and I can share these cultural things with my child. Um, but I've also been curated by a lot of other cultures too. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, the culture that I will give that child is going to be vastly different than the culture that my parents gave to me, right? And so that that continues on and continues on and continues on over time. So same concept with native plants and introduced plants. Like at what point in time do we delineate that a plant isn't welcome? Like the only time that plants are very clearly not from here is when you have like the invasive plants that take over an ecosystem and make it so that the other ecological creatures of the plants of the the area can not exist or subsist. They are aggressively invasive. They take over shit. Like for example, um, Scotch broom in the Pacific Northwest was brought over from England. And there's a lot of plants that were brought over the Pacific Northwest from England that have integrated themselves into an existing ecology and found a way to be supportive within that ecology and like work their way in. Scotch broom is like, nah, it just, poof, like it just takes over everything with no discernment, no concern for the other plants that are there. It just decides to start its own goddamn ecosystem, basically. And then massive ecosystems die off in the presence of that, which is kind of like the difference between migration that has to do with like the idea of integrating and nourishing and sharing and exchanging culture versus migration that has to do with building a fucking empire or a colony where you're like, the way that you all do things and the foods that you eat and the lives that you live Doesn't are no matter. longer allowed to exist here. And what we are has to spread and take over and basically obliterate what you were. Ethnic cleansing, genocide, colonialism. Exactly. That, that's like a form of like invasive species. And it's not that the species themselves, it's not like that these kinds of humans themselves are somehow not welcome. It's the way in which they introduce themselves to an ecosystem. It's the way in which they integrate themselves into an ecosystem. That's just what it is. So like we'll never live at a time, and we never have lived at a time where you have the idea of like pure race. No. I don't even really believe that we're different races to begin with. I believe that we're different ethnicities, we're different bioregions of the world, we're one species. There's no such of thing course, as like, no. you know, like you as somebody who has a Filipino mixture, for example, and me as someone who has a Balkan mixture. We're not a different species of human. 
<laughs> we're biological adaptations of the same thing. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I've always felt that way. Like, we've mm. never had a time where we didn't migrate and exchange culture. We've never had a time where you had a purity of anything. As no. far back as you can trace in anything, there's always been people from different bioregions. Like, if there's anything that is persistent about human beings, it is that we like to procreate. We fall in love. Like, we go to a new place, we're like, ooh, and then we will do it, you know? Like, it's our most persistent quality next to our desire to fight. Like, we fight and we fuck, basically. And so, like, throughout all of history and all of time, we have blended in, we've created different ecosystems, we've evolved culture over time, but it's the violence of erasure versus the fertility of integration, if that makes sense. And it ties back to everything we've said today, like even the demon stuff and the underworld stuff and the fear stuff and the emotional stuff and so on and so forth. It's like this really fundamental binary approach. Are you erasing something? Are you dismissing its existence? Are you trying to obliterate it? Are you trying to suppress it? Or are you inviting it to the table and asking the question of how do you integrate it for value, right? Two very, very different approaches that basically span out to everything in our lives, whether it be social, personal, political, ecological, botanical, same shit. I feel like it all boils down to how well you can listen. Mm. Like mm -hmm. at its most That's simple. That's really it. Mm -hmm. right? If you can listen to a space and recognize what your place might be in it rather than simply mm -hmm. pushing your, if your energy is one that tries to take a lot of, like the eucalypt. Mm. Eucalyptus tree. Yeah. It's not an invasive tree. No. It's kind of an asshole tree. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, <laughs> nothing grow like I'm going to grow, like think of how much energy it requires, firstly. Like those are big ass trees. It's not like, well, this is a large tree. No, that requires, it takes energy. Yeah. So basically it says to everything next to it, Yeah. I'm here. <laughs> this is yeah. my land. Yeah. There's nothing that grows around eucalyptus. Yeah. But it's also part of its magic. So, Olive, for example, similar to eucalyptus, they don't get as big, but olive trees grow in a way where they take up a certain amount of land space and nothing else can grow in this particular space. So if you go to any olive farm, you will notice that there's always a circle built around the olive that is the radius of its Not root system, grass, right? and nothing will grow in that radius, and then it'll grow outside. But if you also know about these plants through a medicinal lens, like once you get to know them, not as just how they interact with their environment, but what it is that they bring to the table, these are also two plants that are intensely antimicrobial. So through their root systems, they actually release um, different phytochemicals, which will like literally wash out anything else that could exist in that space. And now it's what makes them so valuable to us. One of the reasons that olive is such a staple in our cultures and why the Mediterranean diet has already, like through scientific consensus, been decided the diet of longevity. You know, like I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day, he, both of his grandparents lived until they were about 102. My grandmothers are both in their late 80s. I'm like, they've got a good amount of time ahead of them. Like, I am not in any way preparing for my grandmothers to pass away at any time soon time. Like, they're in optimal health. Um, and that thing we talked about yesterday, that all of our grandmothers said the same thing. Drink a teaspoon of olive oil in the morning. And then, like, what you do after that changes based on the grandma. But the fundamental principle is, like, teaspoon olive oil in the morning every day. Mm -hmm. Just constant. Like, and do it over years. Like, make sure that you maintain this. It's because olive is a cardiotonic, and it's a very strong antimicrobial. So any kind of infection that lives in the body in a low-grade kind of a way. And you're not just thinking about infection here. You're also thinking about your microbiome, because your microbiome plays more of a role in your health, your longevity, your worldview, your mental health, your emotional health, your hormonal health than any other part of your body. Like there are more microbes in your body than there are human cells by a huge amount. Mm. 
And they are the ones that control your cravings, what you want to eat, what you feel, all of it. Hmm. They're in control, basically. It's this partnership between human cells and microbial cells, but microbial cells are the dominant ones in mm. the situation, in the scenario. So when we talk about like a herbal antimicrobial, they're not like antibiotics. It's not the same thing. Like an antibiotic will go in and it'll just like clear the forest. It'll clear cut your, your microbiome. Um, herbal antimicrobials are very different. They have very specific relationships with very specific microbes. microbes. And they will keep certain microbes that are more, that need to be kept in check in check. Like there's certain microbes that you want to grow, grow in abundance. It doesn't matter. Like it's good to have a lot of them. And there's other microbes that are very important for the functioning of your body, but within a very contained amount in a very contained space. Like for example, H. pylori, which is an infection we have all over Jordan, or E. coli. These are two bacteria that live naturally in your body all the time with no problems whatsoever. And they stay to their little corner of your body. And they're happy there. Like H. pylori lives in your lower intestine and it needs to be in your lower intestine or your microbiome in your lower intestine will be fucked up. If H. pylori comes into your stomach, it's going to eat through the walls of your stomach and give you ulceritis and potentially stomach cancer. See what I mean? Um, so there's specific herbs like eucalyptus and like olive that have a very specific relationship with a very specific class of microbes and it keeps them in check. It keeps them, it keeps like managing their levels and making sure that those levels are at a point that is good for your body. And then you have particular antimicrobials that grow in a particular environment. So olive in the Mediterranean is great for Mediterranean people because we and the olive are dealing with the same microbial environment. Mm. Meanwhile, if you have an antimicrobial that grows in India, that particular plant has grown to have a relationship with particular microbes that are abundant in India. Therefore, very good for the body of a person living in India. Honey as well, right? Exactly. So if you're eating localized honey, you're dealing with honey that has plants who are specifically grown and learned and have the best relationship with the local microbes. So therefore, it'll be the most effective. So for example, things like manuka honey, like manuka honey is from New Zealand and manuka honey is phenomenal. But local honey from a local environment that you are in might actually do you better than some fancy, well-researched honey that comes out of New Zealand. Exactly. Well-packaged. It's responding to... Well-packaged. Because <laughs> like a, a jar of Manuka honey costs like... Like 30 bucks. Like 38 JDEs, man. And then right next to it, you have a local honey that was harvested from the mountains of Jordan. Way higher quality because it hasn't been shipped across the planet. Package it better? Yes. So easy. Yes. And then give the we'll money to Manuka the people. We'll do Manuka honey packaging and like hype, but for localized Dude, products. Like, you don't understand the degree yeah. to which we can produce hype. Yeah. We also have all the tools yeah. and the tools yeah. to do it very effectively. Yeah. I'm the hype man. You're the hype man. I, I do a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. a separate subject, but mm. I figured I wanted to drop the suggestion. It's not it's actually <laughs> very much within our reality to get dressed, mm. step in our car, head to a particular direction, mm. and have a beautiful walk in the forest. Yeah. Just saying. It's a possibility. It's in the realm. <laughs> yeah. It's a possibility, and it might be a possibility worth exploring. It tickles you, doesn't it? It tickles you, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> some big views of the Jordanian forest. It's kind of green up there right now. Yeah, it's super green. We're in the middle of winter. I mean, We've gotten such little water this year. It's crazy. But recently, there's been a lot of I water. I heard we're going to get a cold snap in February. That's what everyone's yeah, saying, sure. but how can we know? 
How can we guess this? Apparently, there's this whole system. Oh yeah, people. <laughs> there's this whole system of meteorologists and like no 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 no. But it's a conversation, isn't it? Like this is beautiful weather, but yeah. you also have to feel the cold. We haven't felt really the, the land cold. needs it's it. Not we need water. About. We need water. I'm just saying. I would how be can very you know? happy if it stayed at this level of temperature, but Absolutely. then just like tons of rain came. Absolutely, in. that would be beautiful. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just miss the rain. We could do some rain dances. <laughs> Do you have one of those like rain sticks? We can get one. Yeah. Like one of my curtain rods. Kind of, yeah. Like, mm. do you want to? So just put some beans. I have a rain stick. I can get a rain what stick. What we could do is we could go to the bamboo shop mm. and get a couple of bamboo sticks. You put rice in it. You could put some rice in it if we hollow it out. Then just like salt. Like or maybe salt one's already hollowed out. Some of it yeah. is already like that would be cool. Mm. Like yeah, definitely. Mm. Uh, then we can go to Too Tough to to, to to tap, and get our jujitsu rolling mats, and then we could go to the forest. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm, it's possible I say Mary. I would say at this point, we could also, right before you leave, just say that we've kind of, you have to rest it on its leaning leg. Um, we've been in here for almost like three hours, probably more than that. So Has it's, it been three hours? It, it's pr- I, I've heard the beep at least twice, which means two hours. Um, I have not, I don't know what time we step in. It's going towards the third, for sure. I think it's going past the third. Mm. Well, we will know soon once we exit the container. I'm just saying, I feel like we're the container has been entered and been in really mm. thoroughly. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we just have to... What do we have to do, so hype? You have to keep going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not the question I was going for. <laughs> You'd have to... Put. How do we uh, end our podcast? <laughs> are we ending? Uh, are we? Well, I, I can't say it unless we're ending. You can, like, I feel like the time has come. All right. I feel like we full circled. How do you t- how do you turn it off? Uh, don't worry about <laughs> it. We'll just cut it. All right. When you say the Guys, word. Guys, this is like the least graceful and romantic accent no, I've ever it's experienced. Okay. So, uh, it's only we didn't want you to be jarred by the way it goes. <laughs> no, it's okay. You know, the main thing I about appreciate it. Like I appreciate the thing about our podcast, it. whenever you're ready, the <laughs> thing about our podcast. <laughs> 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 We're back in. We're back in. <laughs> Is that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping for you to pick up what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. Like, look, there's an important thing <laughs> people need to know. And stop. <laughs>